Hey everybody, it's Blake. And I'm Steve. And you're listening to Action, the movie podcast. Everybody, uh, welcome to episode seven of Action Movie Podcast. And again, uh, just to kind of re- repeat what we say every week, this is a podcast where uh, each episode, Blake and I will take a turn picking a movie. And uh, this week is is my turn. But uh, we we don't talk about this movie at all. No interaction with it. No texting. No nothing. Not again. Nothing at all until until the this podcast so at this point blake and i have not mentioned or talked about one scene or one piece of dialogue or anything in this movie together uh, so what you're going to getting ready to hear is the first time we've we've discussed this movie together so this week like i said it's my pick i picked the movie it's uh called double indemnity it's the 1944 film noir classic directed by billy wilder written by wilder and also Raymond Chandler, and it stars Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, and Edward G. Robinson. What initially drew me to this movie was in 1998, I don't know if you guys remember this, but this list came out. It was uh, called AFI 100 Years 100 Movies, and it was just so neat to see all these movies listed, and um, what it, it almost felt like the Bible whenever it came out. It was like, oh my gosh, this movie's on this list. It's It's got to be great. And so this movie was initially listed at number 38 on that list. And uh, 10 years later, they got they had a 10th anniversary of that list and it moved up to 29th. So uh, it, it just, uh, I, I, I really wanted to see every movie on that list. And um, it, you know, obviously that's almost impossible to do, but I was actually working at Blockbuster at the time and we had that list posted and it was a big deal with all of us that worked there. We all wanted to try to, you know, watch those movies and we didn't even have this one at our Blockbuster. I remember I got the Maltese Falcon. It was a Humphrey Bogart movie that was on the, higher up on this list. And, um, but again, it was just really exciting to kind of see this movie on there and, uh, and I never got a chance to watch it, so I figured this would be the perfect chance to try to watch it, enjoy it, analyze it. And uh, that's, uh, again, what drew me to this movie. What about you, Blake? What drew you to this movie? Because you made me. You told me to. All right, so before we proceed, a little spoiler warning here. We will be diving into this movie in depth. Uh, so if you have not seen it yet, you might want to hold off on proceeding with the podcast, hit pause. We definitely want you to listen to it. So don't not listen to it and just forget about it. Just pause, watch the movie, come back. But uh, we will be discussing major plot points. Details will be revealed. We're going to dissect it. Uh, so again, this is your warning. If you If you have not seen it, go ahead and stop listening right now. So it's good for uh, to get our spoiler warning in in before the thirty minute mark of the podcast. <laughs> right. I feel this good this about is it. a first for us. <laughs> yeah. All right. So again, the movie's double indemnity. The plot synopsis of this is pretty simple. 
and it gets gets a little complex, I guess. But again, the the plot's simple. We have an insurance salesman. The character's name is Walter Neff, played by Fred McMurray. He lets himself get pulled into a, a murderous scheme with uh, the the seductive Phyllis Dietrichson, played by Barbara Stanwyck. She's intent on having her husband killed off so she can get the insurance money. And uh, in order to do this, she needs to have an insurance claim on him, an accident insurance. And so that's where Fred McMurray comes in. He, he initially comes to her uh, with uh, just trying to have them renew their automotive coverage, but she kind of throws at him having this clause on her husband. Um, so what Fred McMurray, uh, well, again, Walter Neff, the character, what he wants to do is he tells her about a double indemnity clause, which would pay off double. And that's only if it's a crazy accident, like falling off a train or something like that. And that's exactly what they plot here is to have her husband accidentally fall off of a train. And um, so once uh, Dietrichson's daughter, play, uh, character's name is Lola, kind of comes into play and she kind of throws a wrench in everything. And the insurance investigator played by Edward G. Robinson, character's name Barton Keys, he kind of uh, is the, the, the thing behind everything. Just uh, Fred, what's saying in the way of Fred McMurray, Walter Neff, um, just trying to prevent him from coming through with this and, and getting this, this claim to push through so they can capitalize on this money. So again, it's, it's really cool the way that um, the way Dietrichson seduces him. And cause you know, Neff is a pretty straight laced guy and he's, it's surprising, you know, that, that he kind of goes through on this because when she first proposes it to him, he's, he's put off by it. But again, she just straight up seduces him and it's pretty cool the way she does it through the awesome dialogue and everything that, that uh, Chandler, Raymond Chandler put in here. It's uh, again, it's, you you it's completely believable the way that she seduces him and gets him to do this. So that's that's it in a nutshell pretty much what do you have that you have anything to add there blake of just kind of summarizing the plot i was i was sorry this is drew though i was going to add that i, I thought it was um it, it it is pretty interesting how she does seduce him because the guy uh, what's what's the main character's name again walter ness is an extremely intelligent guy and it almost seems like he seems like he's maybe dealt with this kind of thing before like he's dealt with this kind of people trying to weasel their way into insurance claims like it's 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 his entire job and at first it doesn't really seem like uh like he's going to have anything to do with her like i think he walks out the first time he talks to her so it is very interesting and you get to watch like like steve says the her dialogue and the kind of way she kind of weasel you know i don't want to weasel is the right word but she gets her gets her claws in him and stuff like that it's very it is very very interesting yeah she I mean, she's, uh, you know, again, this is, she played by Barbara Samwick and she was as famous as she was for a reason. She's phenomenal in this. And she, yeah, the, the character she played, AFI did another list, 100 uh, screen heroes and villains. And she was her character, Phyllis Dietrichson was number eight in that list. So that just shows you how great of a character it was. And 
well written and well acted by her. So again, I guess backing up a little bit before we want to get too much into that. Did you want to anything you wanted out on that? I didn't mean to jump well, over you there. Um, uh, no, you you uh, did a pretty good job summarizing. I I got some stuff to add, but it'll be later. Not Perfect. not so much in the plot summary. So yeah, again mentioned it before. Directed by Billy Wilder. <laughs> Every week, I kind of I feel like my Mount Rushmore is getting <laughs> fuller and fuller. But <laughs> he's another one that you could throw up there. I mean, he's just uh, <laughs> it's amazing the stuff that he's done. The things that you know mainly stand out to me. I always think of uh, some like it hot with Jack Lemon and uh, Marilyn. Well, you sh- yeah, Marilyn's in it, and then uh, Tony Curtis. You know, Jamie Lee's. Jamie Lee Curtis's dad, and then the seven, also the seven year itch with Marilyn, which has that you know that most iconic scene really that uh, you oh, the, see the everywhere dress. where where his dress is blown up in the subway grate, yeah, and um, then the apartment in 1960, he he was the first person ever to win um, the Academy Award for producer, director, and writer. So uh, again, I mean the pedigree here just amazing, and one of the coolest things is you know this movie pretty much started the film noir genre uh it's a lot of people credit it with that so uh, obviously a lot of that credit needs to go to wilder as well so what do you what do you have that on him one other thing is he did uh what was it uh sabrina with katherine hepburn he directed that as well and this is kind of not necessarily about the film but it's kind of how like you uh, how the film noir kind of started is uh on the blu-ray that i watched on there was a documentary specifically about the movie and its effect on movies in general and so you said earlier people are you know we're talking about it's an old movie and you say 1944 immediately uh 1944 we were in nearing the end of world war ii and so a lot of those um Historical film critics were talking were talk about double indemnity being the start of film noir, which is a darker, grittier, because basically America had lost its innocence with Pearl Harbor and World War II. And they were ready for more mature stories, more stories of actual people doing actual things in their life, being not being so happy-go-lucky and musical, but being real people in real situations. And this was the start of it. And it was a pretty, um, I'll say it, a pretty amazing start. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah, I mean, again, Wilder, perfect guy to direct this uh, at the top of his game, for sure. And then, he, you know, the, the story was based on a book by... James M. Cain, which was, uh, you know, well, I shouldn't say a book, but a novella, you know, yeah. basically just a shorter book. Actually, um, it wasn't even that. It was a, uh, it was a serial, serialized short story. Yeah. It came out in eight separate issues of a, of relatively popular magazine at the time called Liberty Magazine. So that wasn't even a novella. It was just an eight part short story. Right. And he basically he he bases on the uh, you know basically it's a story exactly like that takes place in the movie. But uh, Ruth Snyder was um, 
the 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 lady that that, that did this basically the the phyllis dietrichson character played by barbara stanwick and I, did you look it up this photo of uh her execution i actually did all i know is that uh, the i didn't go too far into it but it, it's based off real murders uh, that happened in uh what was it 1928 yeah it's a real murder that happened in 1928 that the dude read this the i forget he i forget how they talk about like he was in court one day and he i don't know i guess that's what people did back in 1920 when you didn't have tv you just hang out in the courtroom and get your drama that way <laughs> i guess that's why procedurals are so every day and common mm-hmm. loved but he heard he was there and he heard the story and he it inspired him to go and write the book yeah novella she, short story whatever yeah and she was executed you know put to death uh, in an electric chair and there a guy one of the reporters snuck a camera on his ankle in there and and took a picture of that and it's a famous picture that um you can find a lot of different places and it's, I mean, obviously online but uh, i can't i should have made a note of who it was but a band used it was it guns and roses used that image for something one of their albums like an um, album cover I wish I, i'll look it up real quick yeah gosh, what's your name something schneider Ru- ruth. ruth schneider all right keep talking now yeah I'll so uh Oh, Again, actually, my job. Yeah, producer, do your damn job. <laughs> R- R- Ruth Snyder. Again, I should have made the note. I, I yeah, had it Ruth written down. Schneider. I didn't write the band's name, but I got it. So he 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 wrote that, and then it was up to Wilder and to to kind of convert this into a a script. And a lot of people said that it was um, like unfilmable because of the. The, the restrictions imposed by the what was called back then, which I guess is the equivalent of the MPAA now, but the Motion Picture Production Code because of some stuff that was in there with disposing of the body. There was a gas chamber execution scene in it, and there's a towel when they when uh, Neff first meets Hitrix and she's wearing a towel, and they wanted to make sure that that wasn't too skimpy. But there back then for 1944, there were a lot of things that. Um, were again they 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 said it was unfilmable so it was a pretty big task for Wilder and and uh, he didn't like to write alone so he got a, a writing partner and he initially wanted Kane but uh, he wasn't was working busy on another movie at the time wasn't he he said he was he was working on another movie but Kane also said that Wilder never asked him oh. <laughs> that, that was also a, something I read that um, that so who knows if Wilder just kind of wanted to make this his own and didn't want Kane, you know, kind of buttoned in there, but it sounds, I don't see why Kane would lie about that, you know? Uh, so Wilder basically settled on this guy named Raymond Chandler, who it, it, he, he didn't even start writing until he was 44 because he was an oil executive at a, uh, an oil company. And then he lost his job during the great depression. So that kind of gives me hope. I don't know about you, Blake, but somebody like this didn't even start writing until they were 44. Hey, I'm, I'm already a published author. <laughs> okay. A whole 17 page short story that you can buy for a dollar. <laughs> uh, break, it's our breaking right here for a second. It's a, uh, it says guns and roses, 1991 album, usually illusion. Yep. features as part of the enclosed artwork a photo of the band posing in front of an oversized reproduction of the daily news headline photograph announcing ruth snyder's execution so it's not the actual uh, picture gotcha the, yeah still it's very interesting yeah and it's- the movie the movie that that 
whatever she's she's mentioned that, that her her uh murder well her whole case is mentioned it's been it's been talked about a billion times throughout the throughout the years it's been fairly popular it, like it's, it's probably the, the first one about insurance fraud they, it's just it's just referenced in a whole lot of other other movies all, all the time but yeah that guns and roses thing is pretty crazy yeah i mean again it's like evidently one of the most famous photos of all time that uh i i actually saw that and i remember that uh guns and roses back then i couldn't remember what band it was but i remember seeing that and hearing about that back then that it was a big deal that something that that was on there but yeah so chandler man uh, uh one of the creators of hard-boiled again there's so many different names like hard-boiled you know uh kind of film noir same thing hard-boiled is usually like a detective a private investigator something like that that goes head to head with the mob or or like you know some kind of an evil empire you know the mob or, or it's most of the time the mob you know but um it could be like a crooked cop or something like that but um hard-boiled is again just kind of that film noir grit like blake said earlier just that gritty feel and um but uh chandler's what gets credit as one of the creators of that and then as well as he created the character of philip marlowe that uh you know to this day is still a famous character they just had a tv show a couple years ago maybe last year on hbo but uh, but there's just constantly characters kind of based on Philip Marlowe. And one of the first TV shows that Jeff and I ever watched was Philip Marlowe Private Eye on HBO. It was actually HBO's first ever drama series back in 1983. Oh, really? With, uh, uh-huh. Powers Booth playing Philip Marlowe. So Ooh, I like Powers Booth. Yeah, yeah. That, he was awesome in that. Uh, and it, it was true to form, too. It, it took place in the 30s, just like Chandler's books did. And if you if you can ever find that you should probably check it out it was it was again one of the first things that jeff uh, 1983 i guess i was six and jeff was five and we were watching it's probably this. it's probably still on hbo yeah yeah maybe on hbo max you can find it you're right um but yeah I, i'd like to kind of check that out again but yeah so what anything you want to add about chandler there uh, or philip or, or kane or any of it just a little bit when it comes to with kane he was a little it's one of those weird things where like after the movie came out and was a, a very successful movie, all sorts of things, he got real protective or uh, dickish. I'm not entirely sure, but he started trying to sue everybody. And anytime someone is like, ooh, this guy's an insurance salesman and he's trying to do this or she's an, uh, trying to get he was suing everybody left and right, left and right, saying, that's my story. That's my story to the point where I think I didn't see that any laws or anything were uh, in, like, created, but it wouldn't surprise me if some were like, dude, chill. Right. Ide- everyone has similar ideas. Calm down. Just because the basis is the same doesn't mean it's the same story. Chill. But he was real suing everybody i'm not sure it, it, i couldn't find any, any instance where he won but he sued everybody <laughs> and as far as chandler um i do know that they uh, chandler and wilder absolutely hated one another they mm-hmm. they they just didn't like one another based off that, that special bonus feature like they uh i think chandler was a little more um rigid I'll say. And there's like points where like he had this massive long, like 
120 something item list of uh, infractions against Wilder of why he was obnoxious to work with. And some of them were stupid, like, ooh, he wears his hat indoors or he <laughs> uses the bathroom too much. And but the, the using the bathroom too much was because Billy Wilder couldn't stand sitting in the room with him longer than 20 minutes. And so he would pretend to have to go use the bathroom. So and they're, they're inadvertently annoying the shit out of each other. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. But it is, they just didn't like one another because I guess, cause um, I think this was Raymond's Raymond Chandler, uh, his first screenplay. He had written books before, but he wasn't used to how Hollywood worked. So they literally came into work and while there was like, cool, I need uh, I need a, a script uh, by Sunday. And, you know, I'll give you I'll give you till this upcoming Sunday. It's, it gives you a week. And he's like, bah, 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 bah. what? You can't. I can't write something in a week. He's like, yeah, you, you, you will. And you can. And a week goes by and he's given this document that he literally throws in the trash right in front of Chandler and says that shit. And then they lock themselves in a room for eight days and pounded out the script. <laughs> Yeah. And they did not like one another. It's funny how you can have that much animosity and still create something as oh yeah. It turns out to be uh as good as this movie. I don't want to spoil people's ratings, but yeah, it's a good movie. Well, because uh, the a couple other things, I guess this was an experience of his for Hollywood, but uh he did go on to write uh, a, a pretty popular, pretty famous movie in 1951 called strangers on a train which is directed by hitchcock really he wrote strangers on a train hmm. and before that this is a this is probably on your list of 100 movies you know of all times was uh the big sleep with humphrey humphrey uh, bogart he wrote the uh, the novel that it was based off and helped uh, co-write the screenplay script as well yeah i mean he's, he's mostly novels yeah, and that that's the what's so awesome about him. Again, he had such a great career, um, and didn't even start till he was forty four. So, wow. Yeah, I, I'd heard that about Wilder just in general. He would just seemed like a, you know, I bet a lot of directors were back then. You know, they were just really full of themselves. And but Wilder was kind of like that. You know, he he had he wanted it his way and he was real particular about who he worked with and but he at the same time he wanted his stuff to be great and uh he knew that chandler's dialogue was, was spot on yeah so he, he he could say all he wanted to him but at the end of the day he he wanted him there because he knew that chandler was going to make that movie even better so. and it, it it wasn't just the dialogue it was the banter between characters some of the dialogue that's dialogue. I mean. But it's 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 the banter between two She's people. Specifically good at banter, or yeah, this guy, yeah, yeah. like it's it's all anyone talked about the like the snippy, super witty back and forth banter between the characters. I will say, sorry, right here, and we we, we talked about this before, Steve, with um, Easy A. These characters are quipping back and forth really fast in this movie. What makes this? Um, to you, what makes this any different than Easy A? What do you mean different? Well, maybe that's the wrong way to I word it. I think because it's smaller scale. Maybe, but Easy A could grate on you. Like, I think we said the po- Easy A starts to grate on you after Oh, I see what you're saying. Just like you're- Dawson's Creek did, and sometimes Angel and Buffy were every single character. Because this, this movie does have that. But it's also a much smaller cast of characters. Yeah, but they are like, every, everybody's clever in this movie. 
Yeah. Well, Look, I mean, actually, Lola didn't really have anything funny or quippy to know, say. But you know, but yeah, but the you know, y'all both know what I'm saying. Yeah, the main three, which is absolutely y'all's thoughts on the how. This, no, I, I wouldn't say it was to the level of that. I think these. What I guess what makes this different, in my opinion, is it was back in the '40s. So who who are we to say how people talked back then? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, the dialect the dialect is so fun from back then. Oh God, yes. Mm. But we talk about people being smart. Um, I guess it, the, the the banter between I'm gonna name off the characters and not the actors, but the character uh, between uh, Phyllis and between Neff is really real kind of edgy almost and a little taboo in some cases mm-hmm. but it's real it's real hot and smoky back and forth but then there's banter between uh neff and his best well i guess best friend uh barton keys and theirs is real like they're best friends they're you know based off some of the dialogue they have to one another and just some of the stuff that the other one says under their breath while the other one's talking, but you can miss if you're not paying attention. And I caught quite a bit more of it because I was already kind of, you know, enjoying the dialogue, but then watching it a second time, seeing some of like the, um, the under the breath murmurs and stuff like that, that you don't catch right yeah. away. And that were real funny. Did you write any of the lines now? Oh yeah. Uh, actually I have, too. I have a uh, two of them, I think. Because there's one one in particular, and it's it's basically Barton's or Keys's introduction. Yeah. And he busts in the door, just kind of this big bravado, and he's just going. He's just digging right in F about claims, claims, claims. And under his breath, uh, Walter Neff goes, and put the record on, flip the record because he knows exactly what his friend's going to say because he's heard this same spiel spiel yeah spiel spiel he's heard the same spiel just so many times and it just and if you weren't paying i almost didn't hear it and he was like put the record on flip the record he even like bobs his head when he says flip the record i it made it brought me so did you catch that part steve like real early yeah. on uh-huh oh i mean did you like, have one Oh my god! I, just, I I have tons of them written down, but I guess the first one just kind of getting into the, I guess going through the movie was whenever uh, he Neff and Phyllis first meet, and she uh, he's talking about the anklet, you know, and he asks her what names on it, and she says Phyllis, and she asks him if he likes that name. He says, "I could drive it around the block a couple times." <laughs> <laughs> just like little things like that are just so and just the way he says it and the expression on his oh. face is just so cool but you know he kind of strikes me as this dude that thinks he's a lot cooler than he is you know oh yeah but you know she's she's used she could probably have any man she wants and he thinks that he's he's cool and suave to her you know but she's she has him in the palm of her hand you know but uh he's saying you know just something like that he thinks he's so cool but i, but, I actually have uh i don't have the whole i have it uh, shorthanded but uh as part of their first interaction it's the uh there's a speed limit in this house mr neff mm-hmm. that that and that's like god that's like about a two minute dialogue between the two of them and it is just amazing and it just keeps going and then i actually have that as one of mine and you know she she says do you have, uh, have because mine's shorthanded but do, do you have the whole 
I don't have the no, I don't have the whole thing. I just at the at the end, you know, where she kind of she stops it. She says uh, something I, about I, her husband. Yeah, I think I can. Uh, I think I can go through it based off my shorthand. Okay, <clears throat> she's like, he's because they're flirting real bad, mm-hmm. and she's like, "There's a speed limit in this house, Mister Neff." And he goes, "Really? What is? It? How fast was I going, officer?" And she's like, "You were going around 90. And he goes, "Oh." what are you going to do to me? You're going to come down off your bike and crack against my knuckles. And she's like, maybe if you were a bad boy, he's like, Ooh, what if I start crying? Can I put my head on your shoulder? She goes, "Mm, you can put your head on my husband's shoulder. (laughs) And he's like, Oh, okay. This, uh, well, he says the line I have written down by his response that he says that tears it. (laughs) (laughs) That tears it. I mean, it's just so great. Uh, I mean, just so crisp. And you know, I, whenever I whenever I watch that, I'm just like, wow, I would love and, to just sit down and listen to Raymond Chandler and how he comes up with this. And and what and what people are missing with y'all reading lines is the actual actors themselves on, on with phenomenal line delivery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you miss you miss that with with us little schlucks here quoting <laughs> quoting a movie. Oh, Blake, yeah, Blake did a pretty good job. Yeah. You were seducing me, Blake. I was trying not to look at you. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> now, do you want to? I want to ask you something real fast, if okay. you don't mind. So, um, I, whenever we did the Tomorrow War, mm-hmm. you had a big issue with uh, how it started out, you know, with them landing on the top of that building and kind of starting out with the scene that's in the middle of the movie. I was going to get your take on this. You know, how did you? How'd you feel with the, this kind of starting out the same way with uh, Neff, you know, racing to the, his office and going in there and getting the dictaphone. And, and obviously that, and that's, you know, there's a lot of narration in this thing and all the narration is what he's saying into basically his confession into the dictaphone. So what did you think about that? Did you like the way that they did that or it, are it you still on the other side of it? Like you were with tomorrow war. Yeah. The, the, how I see it is that, was a splash here get your attention look at this real cool thing and now let's give the next 30 minutes of boring or not boring but world building and explanation while is this this uh, the the way the story is being told it's it's an actual way it's a frame story well we we don't start um there's a term that i used in a previous movie where we pick up in the middle of the movie Blake, uh, Blake is a me too a little bit. Blake is a sucker for a frame story. I like a good frame story. Not all frame stories are good. Yeah, but a, and this what this was, and it continually, at you know, at like chapter, it was, it, how they did it too, was it was like a chapter change because every time it would come back, it was at a, basically it was like him swapping out the 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 cylinders the victophone uh, what are they wax cylinders i guess he would swap out the cylinders for the does it show him swapping cylinders no but he has to because by the time the end of the in spoiler alert (laughs) by the time the end of the movie happens um there's a bunch of them spread across uh the desk i didn't even notice that so because he has to swap because they can only record so much he has to swap them out and that's almost every time it cuts back to him, he's swapping out a new and he's like, oh, and then I didn't see her for several weeks. And that's a way of them to, to fast forward the story because the whole story takes place over about a year, maybe Is it a year. It's like 13 months. 
I, th- oh, I think really? it, so I didn't even realize that because he says it was almost that's, a year ago. That seems, that seems long. Well, they go hmm. through it pretty quick. I didn't even catch that because hmm. they talk. Well, they have to wait, wait weeks, wait months. And then he's like, oh, I didn't see her again for three or four weeks. So that, that's a month right there. So it it's 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 like almost a year, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, but almost a year. It would be my time frame for the entire movie, I think. Yeah, and, and I agree with you. And it, it, he basically did twofold with this, with the he they did with the where they could do the the narration, but they also did do it was kind of just like how tomorrow we use it with the flash, which you know, because if they didn't have this scene, then it just kind of goes straight into him talking to Phyllis, you know, where he first meets her. And then it's going to be a bunch of slower scenes. So I think they did kind of start this out with a flash with that. But at the same time, they set it up with the narration, which, again, in my opinion, was just done perfectly. So, um, but yeah, I, I did. You were going to say something earlier. And I kind of interrupted you. Well, but I, just... I, wanted to, I wanted to make sure I asked you that. That's fine. I just um because we keep talking about Walter Neff and all the. Do we want to talk about the actors real quick, just briefly? You could. I think it's good uh, to uh, like that that question, Steve. I think it's good to uh, sometimes reference back to your opinions. I was like, I, mean, I, I think that was pretty not, not blowing smoke up your ass, but to reference back to our previous podcasts and how your ideas about movies and stuff kind of you know you kind of I mean, it's, up- it changes depending on what movie I'm watching and of but, course but, yeah. But I didn't even think about the. Well, because I wouldn't even starting in a, in a way kind of like uh, what uh, Tomorrow War. Because well, I wouldn't consider Tomorrow War a frame story. A frame story by any means. So like, right. cool. Look at this. Get your attention, you ADD assholes, and then you know pull you into like you like because you know in your head that something cool is going to happen later. How yeah. this works? It's a it's the frame story. It's the storytelling device. This is in fact a frame story because he sits down. He's like, well, once upon a time where it all started when I was at, out in, you know, what is it? Not Van Nuys. Um, then he's, then he say, uh, I think you'll use this as a confession or something like that. Yeah, he he, he steps yeah. up to the store and you're like, confession? What? Huh? Oh, in, in that opening dialogue, he he manages to do a little quip, too. Because <laughs> uh, well, where to go? I have it wrote down. Because he's uh, he's like. You know, I, Walter Neff, 38, unmarried, no visible scars. Until recently, that is. Right. Yeah, like, he's, he's obviously injured, yeah. I mean, yeah you're like, you're like, that, scar, yeah. what? <laughs> and he just, you know, that's just his character. His, the, you know, Walter Neff is just a bit, a bit quippy. Mm-hmm. And I just yep. thought, you know, I thought that was pretty. And it also sets up. This this line of dialogue was mentioned all throughout the um was, was mentioned throughout the special a bunch. This is like the, these two sentences or these two sentences are film noir basically, and it was because he he says this and then it kind of rolls into the movie, and he's like keys. I did it for a woman, and I did it for the money. I didn't get the woman and I didn't get the money. <laughs> yep. So it great. all started, you know, you know, almost, I think, I think it's what he said, started almost a year ago. He says it like right there in that opening uh, dialogue spiel. 
And the, you, the way all that's done, I mean, it's like it's spoofed nowadays, you know, the way these detectives talk and they have this like, you know, narration. And but, you know, this is obviously one of the first that did it. And you watch this and you're like, oh, you know, I've seen this a thousand times. But again, 1944, this was the the OG, you know, so it, everything that you, that you see today is based on the, the way that everything it was done in this movie. So it's just so neat to see it, you know, originated. Go ahead and go with the actors if you want, Blake. Yeah, I was just I was making sure every all my I was making sure I was touching base on a couple of different points in the notes. But yeah, um, admittedly, this is one of those hard things because all these actors and act are are older, and so I'm not super familiar with all of their work. So I was only able to pick out a few minor things. Now, one of the cool things though is uh, I'll I'll talk about it briefly and everything, and, and then I'll hop into the actors is that this movie was incredibly hard for them to make. We, we, talk, we spoke about briefly earlier. Uh, this movie was, uh, I guess the term technically nowadays is a production limbo or per production hell. Uh, it was stuck in production for eight years. Eight years it was stuck in production. Crazy. And it, the movie was rewritten so many times. I think they lost count. I think they said it was about nine, between nine and 12 times of, of the scripts that they could find or, or had memos mentioning scripts because they couldn't actually find them. But this movie started production in literally in 1934, which is the same year that they dropped those uh, motion picture movie conduct codes. I forget the exact term, but production codes. Mm -hmm. And some of these things were uh, women can't show X amount of skin. Uh, you, you said earlier, you can't show a, uh, murder of any sort you can't or, or like violence yeah gr uh, gratuitous violence you can't show you know the, all these massive right. list of rules and it kept because the story itself is pretty gruesome you know because mm -hmm. they were because it's a it's a it's an affair it's two people having sex plotting a murder and going forth with the murder and you know it's all these things and it be, while all they want they were re rewriting all this stuff and then they went to go try to audition pe people and offer roles to them and none of them got the story because there's one guy they spoke to and uh he was like bah, bah, i get it he's like but uh where's the lapel bit and those who don't know what a lapel bit is is back in these um i don't want to say noir because this like booted up the noir genre but like cop dramas where like at the end of the movie this guy who'd been doing pseudo bad stuff rips off you know flips over his lapel and he has a police badge hidden under his, the lapel of his jacket and you're like oh, he's been a good guy all <laughs> along yeah. oh that's crazy but there and people were like asking for where's the lapel bit where's the you know is this guy's not a I mean, he's not an, a horrible person. I mean, he he did one bad thing in his life. It was a really bad thing. Yeah, one murder. <laughs> one murder. <laughs> I mean, that and he stole, not stole from people, but he sold insurance. He and murdered, insurance. He murdered for yeah. But they're all like, so where's the re redemption? Where's the, he's a good guy, right? Where's the redemption, redemptive quality and stuff like that? And they just, no one got it. And so they kept being turned down and they've, and all of them did, even the the 
for Phyllis, uh, Phyllis Diedrichson, they couldn't find a, a good seductress. And apparently even the people well, particularly the main two, which would be uh, Walter Neff played by Fred McMurray and Phyllis Diedrichson played by Barbara Stanwyck. They both turned the role down and they were like number four. Well, actually I think Barbara was higher up on the list. I think they wanted Barbara and they went to her first and she turned it down. They tried other avenues and then they came back to her and they're like, we have to have you. Cause if you don't know, uh, Barbara Stanwyck at this point in time is one of those weird things about history. Not only was she the highest paid actress in Hollywood at the time in 1940, 44, she was the highest paid woman in the world mm. at that point in time. That's wild. I mean, she's great, but that's wild. Yeah. And Can you imagine that. Yeah. And same with Fred McMurray, right? What, he, he was, uh, he wasn't like the highest, but he was high up. Yeah, but. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, but he was also the reason they went with Fred because they didn't want like. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not trying to be a dick when I say this, but he, he's a handsome man. But they weren't go. They they were trying to go for the roguish, the the detective. Like they were, like yeah. that's what Hollywood wanted. He's not, a, he's not a rough looking guy, and that's what Hollywood wanted. And they're like, that's not this character. He's he he's yeah, of course he's handsome, but he's not. He's like everyday handsome. He's not like you know humphrey bogart or he's not the and you know all the water and holes and all the places this dame walks in my dude he's not that guy he's yeah just, i mean alan ladd james cagney spencer tracy gregory peck they all passed on yeah yeah and and the funny thing is with fred mcmurray is he's a comedian yeah I, 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 there's like this and two other things in his roster everything else is some sort of family drama or it's a comedy because one of his big big things uh was called my three sons that ran for 12 seasons did you guys not watch that when you were younger i I don't know what it is Uh -uh. really i I mean i've heard of it through like other tv shows talking about it. i've never actually seen an episode wow yeah there's a station called TBS and that's all they did was like show these older shows, like leave it to be Randy Griffith, Brady bunch, but my three sons was on there. And yeah, I've watched, I used to watch that like every day after school. Cause he was uh, the lead role for oh, 380 yeah. episodes of my three sons. Whoa. Steve Douglas from, I didn't write down the year. But it was 12 seasons worth three, mm-hmm. which is a lot. Uh, modern day 12 seasons is not 380 episodes. No. But I think these were daily, except for Saturday and Sunday type stuff. A daily show? I think so. Or something like that. You know, we're talking like 22 minutes, like a TV show today, or, or was it shorter back then? Well, they were, they were like regular sitcoms. Yeah, like 24 minutes or whatever, 22 minutes. Yeah. 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 But I don't know yeah. how to divide 380. Well, I, I know how to use math, guys. I'm not that stupid, but I don't know the math of 380 divided by 12 to figure out how long they went. But it's quite a bit. And besides that, it'll was... be about 32 episodes a year, 31 episodes a year. That's that's, that's still more than your average. It's more than average, but not not but not 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 really outrageous, really. So extra... go, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I got nothing. Go ahead. I was just going to say that the stuff, I mean, obviously My Three Sons is the thing that uh, Fred McMurray is always going to be known best for. Uh, but some of the other things that uh, we had the Disney Channel, when we were kids, it was HBO and the Disney Channel. It was like the only paid channels that you could have. And we had both of them. And 
that all that they had on the Disney Channel were, were these movies like um, Son of Flubber, Shaggy Dog, um, Absent Minded Professor, The Swiss Family Robinson, Robinson, Pollyanna, yeah. stuff all that like stuff that. Like, yeah. But those, yeah. I mean, those three that I just named were Fred McMurray's, you know. Oh, so, really? Yeah, he, he was, you know, the, have you ever seen Flubber with Robin Williams? I've seen, oh, yeah, I've seen that one. I've never seen the original one. Yeah, well, I've the seen... original was Fred McMurray uh, playing basically the Robin Williams part. Well, that's awesome. It's and you need you need to watch it, man. It's great. There's like this bat. I can't remember the the new one. If they have a bas, is there a basketball scene in it? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, but the, the, the basketball scene in the original is great. Sprays it on his shoes and like jumps across the room and like smashes right into the uh, the the what's it called the uh, the 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 basket backboard the backboard yeah backboard because yeah, I don't know sports guys. I'm <laughs> oh, man. But, I was going to say the scoreboard, but I knew that was wrong. I didn't want to come up like a complete <laughs> idiot. I knew it was a board or something. Yeah, I mean, those movies were always on the Disney Channel, and I can't even tell you how many times Jeff and I saw those. But uh, the Shaggy Dog, you know, they remade that with Tim Allen. Oh, so and, They've read that so many times, but I, yeah. I enjoy Shaggy Dog. I wonder if that original Flubber is uh, – is it called Flubber originally? Well, they're, they're, so there's the, – the original one's called The Absent-Minded Professor. See, I wonder if that's on Disney+. Plus. Might be. And then, and then, uh, son of flubber, son of flubber was the sequel to absent professor, but, um, yeah. So, so you were right, Drew. Did it like, I, I didn't, I didn't look into it. Would you, is that the, the flubber? And I was like, it might be. Cause I yeah. didn't think it was called flubber originally. No. Yep. And, and then we, I mentioned the apartment earlier too, with, uh, Wilder. That's uh, he, he won producer director and screenwriter the first ever to do that. But, uh, Robert Murray was also the main star of that in 1960. So, but you know, my my three sons didn't even come out until 1960. He went from 60 to 72, and you know, double indemnity was 1944. So he had 16 years in between, you know, this and that, and uh, so it just shows you what kind of great career you know he had. You want to go to uh, yeah? I was was just trying to. And just one of those kind of like sad notes is uh, he lived a long life. He uh. 1908 to 1991 he's uh, Fred McMurray uh-huh. yeah it's pretty good life and okay. now uh, Barbara Stanwyck a lot of her stuff I'm not gonna lie I uh I really didn't know like of of the of everything I went through a list I was like I don't know any of these movies I knew one uh, I'd never seen it but I'm, I'm aware of it from you know just being alive was uh she did a mini series in 1983 called Thornbirds. It was a four-part miniseries and she was one of the main people in that. I don't know anything about the movie. I just know I've seen I've seen the cover a bunch on back when I worked at Blockbuster in the uh or late 2000s. <laughs> Blake was at Blockbuster at the end. At the yeah, I was at, at uh, the end. At the <laughs> end. And the only other thing I wrote down cuz she's been in over 100 movies. I mean, she's a fantastic actress. Like, there's a reason why she's one of the highest paid. But it's just nothing I, you know, I'm as I get older, I try to reach back, but I have such a hard time keeping up with the stuff nowadays to jo- go back to the 50s, 60s, and 70s. It's hard. <laughs> and I'm, and no matter what time, we've talked about this before, great acting knows no time limit. It's mm. going to be great no matter what. But one of the other things is I I only wrote it down because the name of her character was hilarious. 
It's a movie in 1941. So she did it shortly before she did Double Indemnity. It was called Ball of Fire. And she plays a character named Sugarpuss O'Shea. <laughs> she got bo- like a Bond one. That sounds like, sounds like a Bond character. Sugarpuss. <laughs> yeah, it does. Uh, I, I'm not entirely sure what goes on in that movie, but her name is Sugarpuss O'Shea. So I was like, <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's do this, Sugarpuss. And yeah, uh, no, I mean, I'm the same. It's just uh, I, you know, obviously know her from this. It's the the thing she that that from what I understand, she's most known for. But you know, she also did the Untouchables. I guess was one of the bigger things. Yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to talk about really one other character. And frankly, I think he was my favorite character in the movie because I just loved him every time he was on screen. He just he was really good. Was uh, Barton Keys. Uh, played by uh, Edward G. Robinson. Now, he has a couple pretty big things under his belt. Uh, one of them being Soylent Green with uh, it's Charleston Heston, right? I just so, watched that not too long ago. Really? Soylent mm-hmm. Green? Mm-hmm. Uh, it is Charleston Heston, right? Or am I an idiot? Yeah. It is? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And besides that, he was also in the, the Ten Commandments, which is a pretty epic film. Back in uh, 19, what, 50-something? 53, I think? Yeah, sounds about right. And then uh, one other cool thing, which I guess because he's a pretty big actor. Like, he had a lot of stuff in his roster. But he, he was in an episode of the Adam West Batman series, and he played himself. He played a, a big, popular, big, famous Hollywood actor. Yeah, himself like, and he was he got rescued by batman because he got kidnapped by the penguin or something and i was like that's awesome that he got to play himself on the batman and be rescued by adam west batman and thwart the penguin and it so i'm like that's awesome that made me like him even more yeah one of the cool things about him is i mean he he was kind of a headliner you know before this and he took he he took a back seat uh, to kind of be a supporting character in this, but really, he, in my opinion, steals the movie. You know, his he, he's my favorite character in it. Even likewise, uh, he got tons yeah. of presence when he's on screen, and he's mm-hmm. and he's like the small, not, not not a big dude, but he just blows onto the screen and says a bunch of crazy stuff, and then he's gone. And he's uh, uh on top of that, he's a well respected character in the movie oh, yeah. like the everybody because he's like the doesn't he run the eight no no he's no, the because no, they, they, they talk to the guy who runs and that's a funny yeah. thing i wanted to talk about later yeah yeah see he uh it, one of the cool things about him is you know he he was known for playing villains and you know like kind of tough guys and things like that and and but i can see him being a little little mobster yeah well he he was in that uh little caesar uh, was like kind of his breakout role. Uh, that was in 1931. Again, this is 1944. So that just shows, you know, how he had a, you know, 12, 13 year career before this movie even came out. So, um, but he, he played all these kind of tough guys and bad guys and, but off screen, everybody liked him. He was just a real likable dude and wasn't like that at all. And one of the other really cool things, I don't know if you saw this, but, you know, the, this character was the inspiration for Chief Wiggum on uh, in Simpsons. Really? Yeah. Uh-huh. Really? Yep. That was Hank Azaria's inspiration for Chief Wiggum. Was Walt, Barton Keys from this? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Chief Ralph Wiggum. But just the way he a... talks and everything. You know, Hank Azaria is the voice of him, but Hank yeah. Azaria. Yeah, yeah. The... Me, me and Jessica have been watching 
Simpsons on Disney Plus, but my turn. See, that's such a a leap, a, 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 a such a dramatic. Okay, leap. Well, are you saying uh, Barton Keys or the actor Edward G. Robinson? Barton Keys. Oh shit! Hey, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's weird. I would have. I would have never put that together. No, not at all. Yeah, Google it. Yeah, because oh, I can I'll, sort I'll, of I'll see it. You, but I, 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 that's he's crazy. like, listen here now, Neff. Uh, you know, I, I could kind of like thinking that I can kind of he, hear it, but it's you know the fact that this character that character was inspired by, but it kind of became his own character throughout yeah. the Simpsons. You know, maybe more of that. But because it would, would be inspired by me, it's like the his speaking pattern and stuff, not the fact that he was a smart character and stuff like that versus a dub character, yeah. right? But yeah, Bart AFC Keys was definitely my favorite character. Yeah, same. Anybody else you want to touch on cast wise, or you want to kind of nah, no, because no one else really was stand out worthy, frankly. Like, there, the was only good other acting. one, I guess, would be Lola. You know, Jean Heather. She was a fairly big actress at that time, but I, I didn't, uh, I didn't look into her. So, if you have anything you want to say about her, go for it. And then we'll no, no, on. I'm good. Um, okay, but uh, yeah, so I guess we can just kind of delve straight into the movie if you want. Kind yeah, of we've some... already talked about a couple of scenes, you know, the intro and everything. Uh, we talked, you know, she seduces him and gets him to eventually, without her husband's knowledge, trick her husband into signing an insurance policy and sending in money for an insurance, an accident insurance policy on himself, thinking that they do this whole scheme with a wonderful dialogue and pretty smart, frankly, uh, execution of the the murder which uh i wanted to talk about that's kind of the next big thing we can talk about right is the the actual murder is there anything more of the actual setup itself because there's there's quite a bit of setup i mean all the setup is them the chit chat back and forth and her slowly bringing him in he's like when he, he does one of those confession scenes again and he's like keys as i you know as the night went on i realized that I hadn't left anything at all. I was still thinking about it. And wouldn't you know it, she came knocking on my door. And then they spent the night together, pretty much. There were subtle hints throughout the movie. And we kind of talked about Chandler and how good he was with dialogue. But one of the other things I really like is how good he was with putting information into these scenes between two characters you learned so much and it was sneaky how you learn you know like i was watching what's the newest clint eastwood movie cry macho or something either cry macho or something about gringo i think it was cry macho though get so, the gringo I yeah think cry macho is the one i'm thinking of I, ch- I i i didn't even finish watch that movie it was it was bothering me right off the bat it's just that that is the complete opposite in that movie Brought about there's a scene between Dwight Yoakam and Clint Eastwood, and they try to put information in this dialogue, and it's just it's so forced. And you're like, why are you even why are these two characters even talking about this? The only reason you're doing this is to feed the audience information about these backstory on these characters. But in this, like you, you know, you learn how long Keys has been doing this. She was like, I've been doing this for 26 years, you know, just the way he says it, you know, he just oh, yeah, it, it's just like so smooth and sneaky and but 
it, same thing with Neff between Neff and, and Dietrich. So whenever they're talking, you know, you learn so much about each character and it doesn't feel forced. It's just perfectly slick and smooth and just it's the sneaky the way that they do it it's just i mean it's just a freaking seminar in screenwriting it's also that and how like it also has to do i guess with maybe the dialect and stuff but it's so fast like there's barely a breath in between some of their words Mm -hmm. and it's just boom 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 yeah and like you said the whole um well i mentioned earlier one of my favorite lines was with one of the under the breath jokes was between keys and Walter. And he was just like, and put the record on and flip the record. <clears throat> and during that speech is also when he's unloading a bunch, he's like, you know how long I've been doing this Neff? I've been doing this for, like you said, for 26 years. And you know what? I could smell a phony this, you know, and he's like talking about, he's talking about his, his little man, his little man on the inside that gives him indigestion. And yeah. The little man. Uh-huh. And like, it's a funny speech. The character Neff explains that he's heard this speech so many times. He could probably say this speech, but he comes in and it, it, the character, it gives you the, the, the character is smart. He's been doing this a long time that they are friends that they can just vent like this to one another. And the fact that he pulls him in to his office to she, to sh- and you automatic, you get the first really sit down thing you get with keys is him busting a dude for insurance fraud yeah that garlapis i was going to talk about that yeah, yeah go for it, it well, whenever right you f- we first meet keys it, he has that garlapis in his office and i, I was just gonna say that scene whenever garlapis is leaving the office um but you know Keys sniffs him out right off the bat you know and basically he's like you know move on i don't need you anymore i'm done with you i've already exposed you and as garlapis is leaving the office he tries to say something else to keys and keys just says don't you know how to open the door? Put your hand on the knob. Turn it to the left. Pull it towards you. Out of boy. Yeah, get out of here. <laughs> I love that. So great, man. <laughs> Loved it. Oh See, my he gosh. controlled every scene he was in, though. He was mm-hmm. the yeah. And the, the we've talked about it a thousand times already, but the relationship between him and Walter, you know, he's operations and Walter's sales. I mean, we we know all about that, yeah. you know, with the sales over promising something and uh, just you know, he he's come. Uh, Keys is complaining about it, and and Walter's like, I, I put you know I put the the background check in there. I, I told you guys what he was. I'm not I'm not blaming you, Walter. I'm not blaming you, but that's just the way they're doing business nowadays. Just the way they're doing business, you know. And uh, and Key, you know, Neff talks about that. Uh, we get a glimpse right off the bat again. This first scene, like I said, how they plug all this information in one scene. You learn so much about each character in one scene, but. We saw how good Keys was at his job with how he handled that Garlapas character. And then we also, um, you know, Walter has that piece of, he he has that example, that analogy uses with the calendar. You know, he says something like, you wouldn't know what today, today was Tuesday unless you looked at your calendar. And then and then you look at your calendar and you check this, and you check that. You, and you check, check the that. World Almanac and then you uh-huh. check the World Almanac against the World Calendar. And then you check the World Calendar to see if they were using the right calendar. Yep. And make sure you do. So right off the bat, you just realize, man, Keys, you know, he doesn't mess around. He make, if, he, if he wants to know something's true, he makes sure that it's true. So if he tells you it's fact, it's fact, you know. Oh, yeah. He but, knows uh, it to be a fact. Yeah. Yep, yep. Uh, again, I mean, all, all that, that's the first scene that we meet, you know, Keys, and it's between Walter and Keys, and just right off the bat, we know, you know, so when Walter goes to do this, this plot, you know, when he plots with uh, 
Etrickson to do this when she finally seduces him and gets him to go along with it. The only thing in his mind, you know, is is keys. He's and, like, how can I be smarter than keys? I was asking questions that you would ask. I, I was pretending to be you. Because he's he's saying all this in some of his over the um his voiceover while he's talking into the uh his microphone, his little recording device. Well, big recording device. Let me rephrase that. Dictaphone. Yeah, but he's he talks about how how he's like the only person we were worried about was you. The yeah. only person in the entire world we weren't about was you. And there was reason to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he tells her, he says, uh, you know, he's talking about some of the examples and he says, he tells her, he's like, for, he, he just like you said, he's the only thing that stands in their way is, is keys. He says, for him to set up like that would be like a slice of roast beef. <laughs> in oh, three yeah. minutes, he'd know it wasn't an accident. It's just, he's like, this has to be perfect. You understand? Straight down the line. Straight down the line. Mm-hmm. It's set a bunch. Yep. We, right off the bat, we, we, we love all the characters and we get a good, you get a good solid feeling for every character. So uh, what's, uh, where do you want to get to next? Well, I guess we could just, I mean, kind of go into it kind of like what drew was saying a second ago just kind of the details of their plan it's uh you know so they, they have to trick uh her husband has no idea he's getting this you know this claim yeah this so accident they have, insurance right so he, he thinks he's renewing his auto insurance so basically walter gets the the form for that and tells the the husband mr dietrichson that it's it's a copies you know he's like you need to sign the copy and duplicate triplicate oh so much paperwork <laughs> for insurance salesman <laughs> again such great dialogue and so much well done by the actor uh but yeah so he gets him to sign that and he has no idea that he signed it so everything is cool he they have the the witness there which is lola you know to kind of if anybody anything ever goes back it's not just walter and phyllis's word lola was also there to say yes my father was there he signed um you know that's what he he heard the uh the spiel he heard the sale the spiel yeah right and then he uh he bought the insurance later when no one else was around exactly so uh, to this point everything's great you know everything's hunky-dory down the line straight down the line then uh so the big plan is, like we kind of mentioned it earlier, double indemnity. He springs that on her. It has to be the train. He just he keeps saying that it has to be the train. It has to be the train. And so part of the double, double indemnity clause in his life insurance policy is he they get, it's $50,000 if he dies in, in an accident. But the double indemnity, depending on the circumstances of the accident may double up to a hundred thousand. And one of the easier things to do was in the unlikely event, he dies on or because of a train. And so that's why they, in she does nothing. It's weird. It's her plan, but she trusts and does nothing. She leaves all the planning to Walter because he knows the insurance business. He knows how people have died, what have died, what accidents went through, which ones are more common, which ones are less common, because he is, in fact, in the insurance business. And he wants to get the, he's like, they're going to go for the big end. The, what does he call it? The, uh, what, how does he say that? I don't know what you're he, says, 
he didn't say like the big bonanza. He's like, we're going to go for the, we're, Oh, he says, he says we're hitting it for the limit, baby. That's why it's gotta be the train. Is that what you're hit, talking about? We're hitting, yeah, it, for hitting the it for limit. the limit. That's the word. Yeah. yeah he, we're hitting it for the limit. He says, baby, I don't know oh how many gosh. times in this movie. It was but like, it's so cool. When he says it though. <laughs> he's, so, he's like, baby, we got to do this baby. And he's sometimes he literally, he'll, he'll literally end a sentence with baby. He'll, he'll every sentence with the word baby in a monologue. He says, baby, a lot. We're hitting it for the but, limit, baby. Yeah. <laughs> it's gotta be, it's gotta be the train. It's gotta be the train. <laughs> and then there's a whole thing where he, cause he's been, he's conscientious, conscientious about the entire thing. He doesn't, because the line was, he's like, why do I want to kill a man who's never done me wrong? The only wrong thing he's ever done is be married to a woman that I want to be with. That's yeah. the only thing this guy's ever done. I'm sure he's a business. He does some crooked deals or something, but he's never done anything untoward. And so he's planning the murder of this guy who just because he wants to be with his wife. And you're like, that's, that's messed up. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted a woman and he wanted the money. But, but I mean, that either. just shows you what women do, you know what I'm saying? Especially back then, just the way women were seen. And uh, I mean, these haughty vixens. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're just cavemen at the core, you know, and that's Dude, what ne- even ne- nowadays, yeah, this? no matter how smart and suave Neff was, he was a caveman, you know, <laughs> she got him. <laughs> ooh, ooh, ooh. What's that anklet say? Ooh, 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 <laughs> exactly. Ooh, anklet. <laughs> Well, well, what he did, he saw her son. He partially saw her sunbathing, and he was like, "Give her the old up and down." And how you doing? I don't care if you're married or not. I'm going to flirt with you and seduce you right now. Let <laughs> Susan Deuce be back. But anyway, so part of the plan is he has to get the husband onto the train to get the to trigger the dug, double indemnity clause to get double the money. And uh, there's a whole plan about it's it's pretty intense plan, but. What about all the uh, because a lot of the planning is done in these really obvious meetings in this grocery store, <laughs> which is actually a real grocery store that you can go to to this day? Oh, wow, Jerry's huh. Jerry's drugstore. I thought of as all as clever as they tried to be about being secretive, those grocery store scenes, man, they're like, uh, it might have worked back in the day, like maybe it was like a good thing to do, but. I don't know. You'd think they would stand on opposite sides of the uh, of the counters and talk over them, you know, like look, look down and talk over. But they would he'd, he'd walk up on top of her and start talking to her. I was like, dude, like stand away from her. Like, you know what I'm going to say, right, Drew? Huh? Suspension of disbelief. Yeah, I know. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think, but in the '40s, people were all up in everybody's business in a store. You know, well, I felt like so maybe people weren't weren't worried about it, but they go to that store so many times. But at the same time, they go to a bunch of the movie, but over the course of like only over, over once a, a month only. I get it. Yeah. But, 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 but there's a lot of scenes there though. But there's other, uh, there's one of those, there's, there's a whole scenes there was, was like, he's, he's like, it's, it's gotta be the train. She's like, wow. She's like, she's like, you know, why? Well, whatever time I ask questions, he's like, it's gotta be the train. Well, there's also kind of, this is me knowing a little bit too much going on behind the scenes when it comes to movies like this. And it happens in a lot of older movies like that too. Where nowadays everyone wears their own little, um, like, you know, audio box, audio pack that has their use microphone. Wow. Yeah, nowadays, but back then, the microphones were bigger and they had to hide them, and so they would hide them inside potted plants so people would have conversations. But all the conversations magically have a potted plant on it, and in here, all the conversations had them close to these 
to these boxes that we couldn't see uh, through these walls. That's in, of, the, that's in those scenes? Yeah. Okay. So you can't see it, but because they have the microphone hidden right there, that's why they would get close together, but they'd also be real close to an object because the microphone was hidden in the object. Hmm. And that way they could pick up audio from them. And that's why, that's why they would. I just thought it was a lot of meetings in that store. <laughs> yeah, a lot of meetings. Yeah. But I get, it's one of those things just knowing how some of these older movies were made. Yeah. Or like if people would be talking outside, there would magically just be a, a again, a, a giant potted plant outside this convenience store that everyone would just hang around. But it seemed natural because people would do that. They'd just hang around. That's why they put a the microphone there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so that's why they would always be so close together so they could talk into the mic. I think he's want to be close to her. Oh, I mean, that too. It also, you know, they, they're a wild attractions. They could not be close to one another when such a small, like if they're apart, it's whatever. I mean, oh, I'm longing for your touch, Walter. Or oh, I've been thinking about you, baby. I can't wait to hold <laughs> you and kiss you again. You know, but when they're together, it, it shows where they're like, they're not like, oh, you know, touching one another. But they're they're it's, it's they're getting as close that, as they that, can that, without that primal touching. attraction. Yeah. Anyway, it's yeah. it's subtle. Not, it's not even subtle at that point. Yeah. yeah, they they got they they obviously have to go through a lot. He he wants us to be perfect, so they like you said they do. They have these meetings and they iron it out perfectly. And the big thing is trying to get him on this train, and he's going to go to this reunion, and it, it gets delayed because he. Does he break his foot? Something, uh, I think, a because he's an oil bear, not an oil bear. Yeah, he hurts he, himself at one of his sites. Yeah. yeah. So he has, a, he has a cast or whatever on his foot. And he ends up breaking his leg. So the, the plot is that they're, they're basically going to kill him before he gets on the train. And Neff is going to go on the train in place of him and basically, you know, disguise himself, put a hat over his face so nobody sees him. And then... He's going to jump off of the train where they've decided to meet and where uh, Phyllis is going to be sitting there in the car with the body that they're going to dispose of and just lay it on the tracks and make it look like um, the real Mr. Dietrichson fell off the train. So Neff has to wear a, a cast and, and get on the train and he gets there on the back of the train. He gets ready to jump off and lo and behold, there's a guy sitting there. Uh, what's what's this his character's girl- name? Uh, Jackson. The character's just named Jackson. Yeah, Mr. Jackson. Yeah, played by Porter Hall. Yeah, so he he's hiding his face, and Jackson's chatting away with him, and he what he sends him off to get some cigars or something, right? He's like, oh, you want you want you want to roll a cigarette? He's like, no, no, I would just uh constantly trying to keep his back to him, and he's like, I I need my cigars, and and the guy's super nice, super affable. He's like, oh. You got a cast on? He's like, I've been there. I broke my arm, you know, and it just itches to, to you know, like hell. I don't think he says like hell, but he says itches to right, like right. no other. And he was like, where are they at? He's like, you know, tells him his car. And he's like, yeah, car four, section, section 11. Like, I'll get you cigars, Mr. Who was it again? Uh, D- Diedrichson. Oh, I'll, get, I'll get you cigars for you, Mr. Diedrichson. You over here. I'll be right back. Just a real nice, affable dude trying to be friendly. Mm-hmm. He's and just then- a talker, though. Oh and God, he is he a, gets a little bit too much into his business for his liking, but mm-hmm. everything's hunky dory at this part. Still, everything's going according to plan. And again, keep in mind at this point, Mister Mister Dietrichson is dead. And I will say the only oh, problem I have with you, this was: sorry. did y'all say how he killed him? No, I was. I wanted to talk about that once we got through a few things. 
Okay. And that's one of the cool things about this, you know, and we, we've talked every week about how nowadays they just show too much, you know, there's all this gore and violence and they don't show any of this, you know, uh, he's straight up sitting in the back of the seat whenever uh, Mr. Dietrichson gets in the car and the next thing you know, he's dead. So, but yeah, go ahead and you can kind of talk about what, what yeah, because in all honesty, this was probably my favorite scene. There's some good witty banter, but artistically. This was probably my favorite scene in the entire movie. And the reason this scene happened was because of those production codes, mm-hmm. which I thought was because they couldn't show uh, the, the murder. They couldn't show the disposal of the mm-hmm. body. And so they kept trying to get this scene to go. And so the, 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 what they ended up doing was they, she, she gives the signal, which is three honks on the horn on this dark road. And then the camera just does a, I'm talking an intense zoom, not an intense, but it does a, a zoom under her face while she's driving. And she doesn't crack a smile. She doesn't get sad. She doesn't get just driving stone faced. And you hear the, the gagging in the, you know, of Neff murdering her husband, strangling her husband to death. Right beside her. But it is right super beside faint her. though. I mean, you really have to pay attention to hear this. Oh yeah. I because, thought anyways. I mean, yeah, a little bit, but you can, you can hear the, you can kind of hear it, but like they zoom in and fade out. Focused on her though. It's her. Did they, did they show that? Did they have that like in the, in the captions, the sound of that? Uh, no, I didn't notice it. There was like, it said like faint struggle noises or something okay. like that. So you might not have, cause yeah, we, we always have subtitles on. Cause they, again, they couldn't actually show it, but I mean, I'm sure there may have been more, than, but they were edited out. Right. But because you can't I mean, just have that scene and it be completely quiet. Like there I, was some. And, and I, I would hey. argue that I bet 75, 80% of the people that watch the movie probably don't even notice that. You know, I, I think I, I thought it was that faint, you know. I, yeah. I mean, we watched it a few times, obviously, and, and we both knew it was there. But I would, I would, I bet that if people, when people saw that in the theater, they probably didn't even notice it. I only really, I'm not going to lie, I only really noticed it because when I watched it a second time, I didn't have it blasting on our surround sound and my TV is I have a, I, I watch it on my Xbox and I have a Turtle Beach uh, surround sound headset. And I, 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 I that's probably the only reason I was able to hear mm-hmm. it because I had my headphones on and I had, right. it like, you know, a little higher than I would so I could, you know, hear the dialogue. And I was, I'll, I'll talk about it super quick and then I'll get to it later was, uh, there's a ridiculous amount of matches being lit and struck in this movie. I have noted in mine too. Uh-huh. And I was trying to, cause I was taking notes and stuff. So I had the volume turned up a little higher so I could hear when, whenever they would do the match flicking noise so I could pay attention to it. I had my volume up a little loud, but we'll get to that later. But right now we're focused on the murder and, and that, and that scene, uh, the zoom, the zoom in on her face, was literally uh, something they had to overcome because of the restri- the codes. This is one of those movies that I honestly believed was made better due to the restrictions. They had to become c- more creative, more artistic, and mm-hmm. some of the stuff. I agree. And there's a difference between there being restrictions being imposed upon you as opposed to production restrictions like, oh, uh, this thing's broken or it only works on this day or it rained on this day. So, you know, stuff like that, like 
completely not the same thing. But when you look at Jaws and some of the most memorable moments of Jaws were uh, the director having to become creative because their giant, awesome monster prop wasn't working that day. Like the yellow barrels in yeah. Jaws. One, one, amazing. One of right. the best parts. Mm-hmm. And it was because what they wanted to do couldn't happen because the machine was broken. Mm-hmm. This was a different type of restriction, but restrictions breed the best creativity, I think. Because when you when you tell somebody, do whatever you want, you the, people struggle. Mm-hmm. The, 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 vast, the vast limitations brings in anxiety. But when you're like, you can do whatever you want, but within this box, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that. And you're forced to get those gears going and it make, makes it honestly it makes you become more creative and not everyone thinks that way but i'm not saying censorship and stuff is the way to go but you know slight restrictions mm-hmm. like um again nothing that really has to do with movies or anything but there's a, a fantastic author that me and drew love a gentleman named brandon sanderson and he's responsible for what is now a lot of people nowadays call Sanderson's three laws of magic. And one of the laws is that what in, in, in a magic system, what's a, what something can't do is always more interesting than what it can do. And that also talks about restrictions, creating smarter characters, better character building, better world building and stuff like that. Cause it creates create creative problems that have to be solved creatively within the bounds of your story and that's a whole other thing but they worked really well it was created uh, was it your favorite scene the uh the zoom in on her face or was it one of your favorite scenes oh it was super cool i mean my favorite scene is the very last scene of the movie oh the very okay that's fair but you know i still like the scene it was my favorite scene in the movie but whatever <laughs> you know you don't have to agree with me but you know it's whatever. <laughs> But um, yes, I'll talk more about that in the end, too. Mm. Uh, do you want to where we go after this? Do you want to? So uh, I guess I mean, where, where we are is they 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 complete this. They they dispose of the body. They put on the tracks, but it, it immediately goes to the next day. And I think this I was going to hand this over to you because you said you wanted to talk about that. The guy, the head yes. of the department. So basically, the next scene is this scene. So th- this is we talked about earlier. We're like, oh, there's all this witty dialogue and this fast bop, 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 bop dialogue. But it's really the three characters, Keys, Neff, and Mrs. Diedrichson or Phyllis. And so and they're all witty and smart. And and then we meet this guy, Norton. Apparently, he is the owner of their insurance companies. And he's got he's real high up. And he calls Keys in and he calls Walter in and they're trying to talk about this accident that just happened that has a double double indemnity clause and the dude died on a train and they're trying to figure out mm, why did this happen? And he's, he's talking all this. Oh, because uh, basically what it comes down to, which is even funny for 1944, is the biggest thing that the insurance is worried about is paying the insurance. Mm-hmm. Because insurance companies don't want to pay insurance. That's the whole point of insurance. They want to take your money and take your money, but never actually give any of it out. Right. Because otherwise they would they wouldn't have money. And there's all it's just crazy how similar that is in 1944 to mm-hmm. it. Here it is in 2021. Yep. It's bonkers. And I I I just I was like, that's crazy. You know, like we're not in 
nothing nothing new ever happens we're just cyclical in life <laughs> and it's sad to see mm-hmm. but this is a character who thinks he's smart because mm-hmm. he, uh, he meets his match and keys oh yeah because <laughs> uh during that whole spiel uh god Keith says a great line uh about uh it's like a i guess a football term or a baseball term where he's like you got the ball now man let's see you run with it sir and he's like i will <laughs> run with the keys i will run all the way to, to the touchdown or whatever to the score i forget exactly what he says I'm, i don't know sports don't judge me <laughs> anyway he's like he call he calls in our, their guest uh which is phyllis mm-hmm. and he's he's going to try to like uh, like shocker into catcher and a lie catcher and a lie and they go through this whole spiel he's like oh your husband had an insurance that you're unaware of and he's trying to like oh scare and shocker and she and she's being perfect she's like i didn't even know my husband had an accident insurance policy until well until you called me i didn't know he had insurance for that and she's just you know just being a you know fantastic actress and <clears throat> The, this whole scene builds up to this guy who who's, thinks he's smart. He knows how the insurance business runs. And he's like, ma'am, your husband committed suicide. And so for that, we're not going to pay you any money. Or we're going to pay you some of the money, but not all the money. And he's trying to like, and she, she's like, you told me that I didn't even have, I didn't, you didn't pay me money. But then now that I'm here, you're like, oh, we do pay you money, but we're not going to pay you all of it. We're going to pay you part of it. And she's like, I never, sir. And she, you know, walks out of the room and it's a big, big exit or whatever. And she's like, good day to you, uh, Mr. Keys. And good day to you, Mr. Uh, Neff, you know, pretends like she doesn't remember his name from the one meeting they had. And so that, that whole thing blows up in that dude's face and Keys is just sitting there. He's got his fingers interlocked over his little belly. And he was like, well, you dropped the ball on that one, sir. <laughs> You're just like, damn it, Keys. Why do you got to be? A t-? And then this is an because uh, Keys goes through several rants, mm-hmm. like long winded little monologues mm-hmm. he does. And based off my understanding from the little special it's apparently every single one of those one shot. He nailed it the first time, and they didn't bother reshooting it. His his opening rant, this amazing suicide rant, where he's like, he, he's talking to the boss. He's like, "Do you know she can go to court, and we can prove it was suicide?" No, can we, Mister Norton? First thing that struck me was that suicide angle. Only I dumped it into the waste paper basket just three seconds later. You know, you uh, ought to take a look at these statistics on suicide sometime. You might learn a little something about the insurance business. Mr. Keyes, I was raised in the insurance business. Yeah, in the front office. Come now, you've never read an actuarial table in your life, have you? Why, we've got ten volumes on suicide alone. Suicide by race, by color, by occupation, by sex, by seasons of the year, by time of day. Suicide, how committed? By poisons, by firearms, by drowning, by leaps. Suicide by poison, subdivided by types of poison, such as corrosive, irritant, systemic, gaseous, narcotic, alkaloid, protein, and so forth. Suicide by leaps, subdivided by leaps from high places, under the wheels of trains, under the wheels of trucks, under the feet of horses, from steamboats. But Mr. Norton, of all the cases on record, there's not one single case of suicide by leap from the rear end of a moving train. And you know how fast that train was going at the point where the body was found? 15 miles an hour. Now, how can anybody jump off a slow-moving train like that with any kind of expectation that he would kill himself? No, no soap, Mr. Norton. We're sunk, and we'll have to pay through the nose, and you know it. 
how he's like I, he's like i thought it was suicide oh he didn't he like throw some math at him and stuff oh yeah stuff. oh he has some some um some like crazy crazy uh, amount of statistics yeah and stuff. He, he, like, he like lays waste to his his boss basically oh, yeah but only after he <laughs> at, let him after she leaves yeah. he he basically let him make a fool of himself got 10 volumes on suicide alone suicide race by color by occupation <laughs> yeah and he's by season of the year by time of day by gender and he was like, and then I, by uh, by jumping, by this, by this, by poison, by subcategories of poison, these poisons mm-hmm. do uh, gaseous <laughs> ingestion. So he, I mean, it's, yeah, he, he lays it he, out one take. That, that was the first. He nailed it the first take, and they said we don't need another one. That was it's incredible. Perfect. It's incredible. And that, oh, God, and you know how many of these suicides were by train? Zero. Mm-hmm. zero suicides by train going 15 miles an hour of a broken neck mm-hmm. good and they you know he they, and he just he leaves he leaves his he, he basically backhands his boss with words he, he takes a drink he's like come on walter <laughs> that was a great scene yeah, <laughs> and it was truly fantastic and then that another one of those uh like right here because every time keys is on He's in Walter on set. He's got this big ass fat cigar. Mm. And he's always like, like he, he can never find a match. He can never find a match ever. He's always patting his clothes. Yeah. <laughs> and then Walter does that standard Walter strike anywhere thumb match and lights. How it. cool is that? You know, they Just obviously like, did that. You know, the actor is obviously doing that. Oh, yeah. Th- th- that's that a, match like that. Yeah. Just clicking it right off his thumb. The, the key to this keys scene, no pun intended. Is uh, <laughs> they walk out of this meeting and Walter is like on sky high, you know. We keys is on our side, yeah. Basically, know? keys has been winning their fights for them. We forgot to mention, doesn't early on, did y'all mention early on that uh, well, what was his name, main character, Walter Sorry. Neff? Walter tells the girl, tells the girl that keys is the most dangerous person. For their entire plan, doesn't yeah. he tell her that? Did yeah, he, t- that he tells her that early on. Yeah, well, very early on, like Keys is going to be the person who will take us down. Yeah, yeah. So he, he's like, "Here you are." So that scene right there is what. That's when he said he's so excited after that scene. He goes and talks to her again. Well, and that, that, we've got it. But we got past Keys before he talks to her. It does the um the voiceover a scene a scene change where it kind of and he's like he's like I could have kissed you that day, old old buddy, because mm. you were just our greatest ally. He's like, you were, you were battling all of it, whether you knew it or not, you were defending and winning all of our fights for us. But this and doesn't because, last long because that yeah. night his doorbell rings. Oh yeah. And his, uh, he's his little man. He's like, yeah, I was eating and just this hunk of concrete. My little man just wouldn't let me finish eating my dinner. And I got, got me to thinking, and he, you know, he starts kind of like unraveling the plan. He's like, "What if somebody else was there? What if it wasn't an accident? What if it was a a murder?" He's like, "The cleanest murder I've ever seen," but it was. He's like, "It's a murder. There has he's to like, be." He's like, "The guy, the guy had a broken leg. Why didn't he put in a claim for the broken leg?" Yeah, and then he's like, "He's like, and I guess just because he's so, he's like, he's like, this case is already unraveling itself by the second. He makes a huge <laughs> spiel. He's like." Maybe he just didn't want to file a claim for the leg. It's not that big a deal. It's just a broken leg. No, 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 no. They've messed up, and now I'm on to them. Me and my little man are going to take them down. He's he's so excited. 
And that's like later that same day, like yeah. after he thought they were in the clear, he comes to the house at night. You're like, oh, because he'd been thinking about it. his little his little man had been taken away. And this is actually I like this scene, too, because prior to this scene, because uh, they, they were victorious, uh, Phyllis had called Walter and was like, I have to see you tonight. Seeing you today and not being able to touch you was just driving me insane. And he was like, OK, baby, come on over. And so, but before she comes, it makes it there. Keys is already there and they're having their back and forth and she can hear keys inside. And so she's mm-hmm. like, I can't, what am I going to hide? And so she's kind of suspense was just so great right there yeah. too, because you, you knew she was on her way up and keys was already up there. So you're like, Oh my gosh, how's this going to play out? They're going to yeah. get caught right here. And yeah. Was, was there, is it going to be a knock on the door and they're going to open it or this, that, and the other, but this is, I, I actually really enjoyed this scene. Not my favorite, but this is actually a really good, scene as well is when Walter and Keyes' uh, conversation begins to wane to the end and he was like okay old man well, well I'll see you at the office tomorrow let's you know we'll discuss this in the office he's like I'm not going to bed tonight I'm going to you know get this solved tonight so they they walk outside and he o- opens the door and he goes to the elevator he's you know holding his drink being you know 1940s everyone just drank constantly <laughs> And they're chit-chatting back and forth. And he, he has the door kind of open. Because she, she hides behind the door. She, yeah, she hides behind the, the door. The door, ho- the door opens out, which is weird. Yeah, I thought <laughs> that was <laughs> Oh, I didn't even think about that. The that door opened weird. out. That is, I thought it was weird, but hey. That's... Maybe they found the one door that did, so the scene would work. <laughs> right. <laughs> but as, as the scene is playing, uh, Walter is uh, ho- slightly holding the door with his drink, kind of gesturing to Keys. As Keys is still talking to him, went for the elevator to come. And she grabs the door handle. And pulls it towards her, and he, he, you know, he, 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 he. You see, you see him, right? You see him acknowledge. He's so in control of the situation. While he's making direct eye contact with Keys, he doesn't like look at his hand and go, oh, make a big thing. You just see his like eyebrow twitch uh, as his hand shakes back, and he goes, yeah, yeah. And he pushes the door further back to cover her up more, and like crosses his arms in front of him, holding his drink. He makes it look mm-hmm. all natural, like someone right. would do in a conversation. He's like, why am I still holding this door? Uh, get away from me. And he, you know, pretends to pay more close attention to his friend. And it's just real smooth acting right there. That scene was, again, real suspenseful, real good. Now everything's starting to fall apart. Yeah, now everything's starting to fall apart. He and Walter knows it. He, 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 when she walks into the when she walks into his apartment, it's just the two of them. He says, you don't know keys. Once he gets his teeth into something, he doesn't let go, you know? So... The only things they can do now is just stay apart until it blows over. But they, they hope it blows over, but obviously it doesn't. Because uh, because Keys is in charge of claims, he put a halt on her claim from being paid. And he's, he's egging her on. He's waiting for her to sue so that he can take her to court and prove all this stuff. And he's like, we're not going to go to court, baby. We're done. We're done. If we can't go, if we go to court, we'll lose. We're done. And... The reason he's afraid to go to court, this is a, uh, did it happen that night? It may have been the following night. I think it's, okay, no, this scene happens and it's the following day, literally the very next scene where um, Lola, a distraught Lola, mm-hmm. um, Mr. Lola Diedrichson, the daughter, uh, goes to see Mr. Neff at his work because she, they had a slight brief connection where they were friendly towards one another. He gave her a ride somewhere and they had some banter early on. 
and she comes to him with a huge nugget of uh of information of uh, during in this mystery and she gives us some backstory about her mother died uh two years ago or was it six years ago well, she yeah. says that she was a kid and no one believed her and so it's been six years later and she's kind of grown up into a more uh, a mature young woman anyway she explains to mr neff that uh, she saw phyllis trying on a black hat and veil two days before the her dad died and she thinks that phyllis killed her dad much like she's pretty sure phyllis killed her mother right because phyllis was the original mrs diedrichson's uh house nurse uh hospice nurse because she was right severely sick with pneumonia and then she paints this horrible picture of phyllis where she walks into her mother's room, you know, six years ago when she, when, you know, she wanted to say hi night, good night to her mother. And this woman is in bed dying, you know, super sick with pneumonia. All the, in, during wintertime, all the windows are open, all the blankets, all the sheets have been stripped from the bed and thrown on the floor. And there is a shivering sickly woman in the bed and no nurse to be found. And she manages to get her mother covered up and close the windows. And oh, lo and behold, the nurse comes back into the room and just goes, oh, I had to go get a cigarette. I'm sorry. What happened? And just, you know, and you're just like, oh, man, this woman's done this before. Starts yeah, making we, you think. Right. We start to realize she truly is cold-blooded and everything. But what? And it seems like Walter's really kind of believing this about her at this at this point and you know he's spending time with lola he's spending time with her to keep her from saying these stories to yeah to keys or any other authorities and um kind of trying to keep an eye on her but at the same time you can tell he's believing it you know he's starting to wonder who he's he's started to mess with the the then the next scene after that is uh is when they he goes to keys and and this is whenever uh Gotta keep forgetting the guy's name, the dude on the train. What's his uh Jackson? Yeah, this is when so this is whenever Jackson comes into play. Keys has him in as a witness. But before we get into this, there's a again a great line of dialogue early back in uh, Norton's office. because you just mentioned him again. And during this scene where they're talking about um only one person saw Mr. Dedrickson on the train. And he points at Keys. He goes, Keys, what was his name? What was this witness's name? And uh, Keys goes, his name was Jackson. Probably still is. <laughs> and I was just like, that, that line, made, I had to pause the movie. I was, just gig- I was giggling because it was so stupid. It's so, yeah. He was like, his name, is, his name was Jackson. Probably is. <laughs> but anyway, let's yeah, And fast forward and so he's been spending a, about a week or two with lola you know trying to make her laugh taking her out to dinner and just keeping her company all around just try to keep her from ratting basically yeah. and when they get to the office he's like when i got to the office you remember this day keys it was may 17th you know and i saw the one person in the entire world that I hoped I would never see again. 
and you want you, you can take it over. I just wanted to talk about that. No, I mean we we don't really need to elaborate too much on it. I mean, it's unless you want to, but it's yeah. just you know the the bottom line is you know Jackson's in the office. He's Keys has him in as a witness, and uh, and Neff is in the same room with Jackson. So uh, Neff is trying not to talk. You know, trying not to let you know Jackson a little too bit, much yet. just kind of be right. Uh, he does not want Jackson to recognize him at all, but Jackson, you know, he, he thinks something's familiar about him. And, uh, but, you know, Walter kind of gets him out of there, but uh, it, it doesn't matter though, because the little man inside of keys is, is chirping away at him and eating away at him. But uh, I mean, keys is basically busted this thing open. He's on the scent and, and Walter knows at this point, I mean, there's nothing that can be done. He, you know, he, he kind of gets away with this at this point, he gets, uh, gets Jackson out of there, but but still the damage has already been done because Keys is on the scent. That you know, okay. that's the bottom line, you know. And then it uh, from here it it's kind of a a rapid descent basically into Walter just because well th- this is the line this is a, a the scene where Walter talks about not Walter my bad where Keyes talks about uh, during murder, there's never just one person. In, in this particular thing, there are two murderers. And it's not like a train ride where you, know, where you guys can get off at different stops. No, this is a train ride that y'all are on together and you're never going to get, get off. You're, you, you've committed a murder together. And mm-hmm. they think they're twice as safe because there's two of them when really they're in about 10 times as much danger. Because all it takes is for one of them to screw up, and it's hello life sentence, and that really gets Walter thinking, especially with what he has from Lola, and what he's witnessed from just being with Phyllis that she's just not, not a nice person, and he's like, what, what could keep her from doing something like this to me with someone younger? And it gets him thinking all sorts of bad thoughts. Yeah, and so it's at this point we haven't even mentioned the character of Nino Zacchetti. Yeah, Lola's boyfriend. So this is where he really comes into play because Keys thinks he has it singled out at this point because, um, again, and this is all Phyllis is doing. She's doing this on purpose. She's been kind of seeing the Zacchetti behind Lola's back, but she's doing it just to make – just to kind of frame Zacchetti, you know? And, well, he's – She's again. This is one of those things where you it furthers the heartless thing, because we find out way early in the movie that the reason she has to get this accident insurance policy for Mister Diedrichson is that if he ever dies, everything he owns goes to Lola, right? And Phyllis gets nothing, not a red cent, nothing. And so that's when she gets the accident policy. And that's kind of bad how the whole movie explodes from there. But this thing goes. And so what she was trying to do, because she mentioned earlier that this Zacchetti has a bit of a temper and it's gotten him, him in trouble in the past. And so she's manipulating this Zacchetti into thinking that Lola is seeing another man behind his back. And she's trying to get Zacchetti to basically kill Lola so that she can get Lola's basically get everything that's quote unquote owed to her is what she thinks. And just, it just, 
the more the movie goes on, you the more you find out that this seductress is a cold blooded, heartless, unfeeling human monster. She really yep. is. And like you said, she'd already done it to uh, Lola's mother. And who knows what she'd done even before that, you know? So, yeah, exactly. But that that's her plan, though. I mean, that's she's she wants to try to because Nino's a hothead. And we see that in a couple scenes. We He's he's only in there for like two or three scenes. But the scenes we see him in, we see that he's he's probably, you know, a decent guy. But he's a hothead. And uh, Phyllis obviously knows that if she can manipulate somebody like Neff, she can definitely manipulate the Saketti guy and. Um, her goal is to kind of get him jealous and uh, and kill Lola because Lola's been with him with, with Neff. Walter, yeah, with yeah. Neff. So if if uh, Nino can kill both of them, she wants. So her plan is to kind of get all of them into the house at the same time and have Nino catch him in the act. So uh, this Which is basically where, it, unless you have something else to add, this is what leads us to the first scene of the movie. I don't right. really have anything else. I mean, yeah, we can do talk about this briefly and then it'll take us to the front end. Yeah. So so basically that Phyllis's plan works out perfectly. She gets she gets Neff in, in there. He's uh he's gonna be there, and then uh Nino and Lola are gonna show up. But uh what but Neff kind of already has a scent of this, and he's in there with, with uh Lola, and she basically shoots him. Oh, you got that mixed up. You mean Phyllis, you said Lola. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So it's it's Neff and Phyllis, and she shoots Neff in the Neff. shoulder, and he asks her to finish him off, but she can't do it because at this point, I guess we found out maybe she does have some kind of a heart and she does care about him because she won't do it. He's like, I can't pull the trigger a second time. I just, I can't. And he's like, it's okay, baby. I can. Boom. <laughs> right. And he, he murks her. And well, I was surprised at that, to be honest. That, you yeah, know? that he, I was honestly, I, did, I didn't, yeah, I didn't think he was going to shoot her. I did, I didn't see that part coming. Yeah, I, I mean, if anything in the movie, I was really surprised at that 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 he that he could do something like that. I, didn't, I, I mean, I guess you know he did cold blood kill Mister, you know Dietrichson, so maybe he obviously is capable of it. Um, but uh, but yeah, so he he kills her, and as he's walking out, Nino's coming in. And he knows that Lola really loves Nino and Nino really loves Lola. So he tells Nino to go, you know, to he tells him where Lola is and to go find her. So he's like, this take can- this shiny red nickel, shiny new nickel and call her. He's like, well, I don't want to call that lion tramp or whatever. He's like, Nino, you're stupid. She loves you. I don't know why. I don't know what she sees. You're <laughs> and he's like, I don't have time for this. Call her. He tells her Granite 0317 or something. He's like, call her. She's waiting for you. And he looks up at him and he was like, yeah. I don't know why either. And he drops the coin in his hand and shoes him away because he at least wants these two kids to be, have a happy ever after because he he won't. He yep, can't. Exactly. And they do have evidently have a happily ever after. And Nino walks away. And this is now we're at the beginning of the movie. Neff gets in the car and heads to the office and starts doing the confession. So this is the point we find out that, you know, this entire time he's been sitting there is the very end of the movie and he's been confessing everything for keys. So the one thing that I guess we can talk about 
is in the original ending that was supposed to end with a, a gas chamber scene and they filmed it and everything. And it cost like what, a hundred and something thousand dollars. Didn't it? It was a pretty, cause they recreated, they built a gas chamber to mm-hmm. scale. They built an actual ga- I mean, obviously they weren't going to gas him, but they built a gas chamber with a viewing room. Like they built it. Yeah. Filmed this scene and everything and didn't even use it. And um, evidently the writers were mad about it, but, um, they couldn't, it was one of the last things like we've been talking about on that list that they, they really couldn't show anyways because of those production codes. So um, I'm, I, I don't know why they, sh- I guess, you know, I don't know why they shot it. it maybe they were hoping that they, they could get away with it, but um, they knew going in that they, they couldn't show that. So, um, but anyway, they spent the money, they filmed it. That scene's out. Is, is it on your Blu-ray? I didn't see it. I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't. I didn't see anything that mentioned uh, the original ending or alternate ending or whatever. I didn't see it on there. So maybe it's yeah, one of those things. I haven't seen that, that are, scene, but evidently it exists. Um, maybe, you know, internet or YouTube, someone's got it somewhere. But as far as I could tell, they it wasn't on my Blu-ray. So my, my we kind of talked earlier. My favorite scene is, is, is this. I mean, you know, Walter's, he's been confessing on this tick to phone through the whole thing that's been the the narration and he kind of looks up and keys has been standing there listening to him it's like uh you know the end of the goonies whenever mikey's talking to one-eyed willie and everybody's sitting there listening to him but uh you know keys has been sitting here listening to, to walter for who knows how long for some time that's for sure not the entire time but for some time right and uh Walter basically tells Keys, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to Mexico or whatever. And he's like, you're not going anywhere, you know, because Walter is pretty much dead at this point. He can barely, barely walk. He's, uh, you know, sweating crazily. Who knows how much blood he's lost. And Keys is like, all right, you know, just go ahead. You know, go ahead. He's like, you won't even make it, make to, it to the elevator. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so with everything else in the movie, Keys is exactly right. He walks out there and finds Walter slumped down in the doorway, just sitting there. And uh, my favorite, uh, I just love it. It's the, like the exact same ending of heat. You know what I'm talking about? When two sides of the law sitting there, but they're, you know, mutual respect for one another, mutual respect. And the the whole movie, Walter's been lighting that we've talked about with the match, what lighting the cigar for keys and giving keys the match. And, Walter struggles to get a cigarette out of his pocket, puts it in his mouth and looking for a match. And then Keys is right there with the match and lights it. And then the movie's over. It's just, yeah, it couldn't be perfect. But the original ending was supposed to, I guess the gas chamber was supposed to follow this. Because yeah, they did that. And then he goes to the gas chamber and they ended up cutting the gas chamber. And literally, I think this is better. uh, Yeah. A lot of people do. They talk about the, um, is like the heart of the movie is the friendship between Keys and and Walter Neff. Without them, their banter, their friendship, the movie wouldn't have wouldn't have near the impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, perfect, a perfect ending to a perfect movie. But uh, again, <laughs> one of these funny little quips is Walter during that scene as he's bleeding out from a, his gunshot wound. He opens the door and he uh, and he slides down the door and he can't move and he can't move any further after he slides down the door. Uh, Keys just comes walking up to him. He says, "How you doing, Walter?" He's like, "I'd be okay if somebody didn't move the elevator a couple of miles away." <laughs> <laughs> and you're just like, "He's got to say these 
these great little one-liners, even when he's literally on his deathbed. I mean, anybody who goes and watches this movie, just pay attention to the dialogue, man. Watch it multiple times. It's, there's just there's too many to list. I mean, we could do a whole episode just on all the dialogue. One one other thing I think is really neat about these old movies, all the credits are at the very beginning, you know? So when this movie is over, like that the scene fades to black and it says the end, it's over. You know what I'm it, saying? Yeah, it, it just said the end fade to black and it's like, oh, you cannot copyright this movie yeah. in 27 the country. It, it literally yeah. just the end, boom. Because everything's everything's at the beginning and there's so few credits, you know, back then. Now nowadays oh, yeah. the damn credit sequence takes Go especially on. for a Avengers movie or something, like 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, they're long. Yeah, it's crazy. But but now, you know, back then they they show the credits basically, you know, in 30 seconds, you know, right at the beginning of the movie. And then I, I just thought that was neat. The end, boom, it's over. Yeah, boom, done. Yeah, boom, done. Thank, wham, wham, thank you, ma'am. So it was, it, it was good. Anything else you want to add? Are you ready to, for final thoughts? Um, We can jump into final thoughts because the things I have to add aren't necessarily super important, but I think I'll add them in, in my in my uh, final thoughts. So just a, a couple, a couple of minor <clears throat> cool little notes is early on. Uh, they describe the house that the Diedrichs live in. It's this colonial Spanish house that was all the rage a couple of years ago. And it's a real house that you can, that is that people live in. Like, it's been on sale several times, but it's a, a real house in Los Viles, California. Like the house is, as far as I can tell, is still the same house because it's, I guess, because it has historical significance, they can't augment it. They can do wallpaper and stuff, but they can't like add on to it or knock down walls and stuff like that. But you can, people live in this house, which is crazy and amazing and awesome at the same time. And uh, the other thing is the actress Barbara Stanwyck is a natural uh, Burnette, I, I believe she's a, Bur- a Burnett, and in this movie, uh, she has platinum blonde wig. This was my only final thought. Oh, this is your, okay. I won't steal yours. No, no, go no, do it, do it. I was just gonna say this. It's cool that we both wanted to mention this. And so they talk about it in the movie, even to the point. One of the big movie producers of the movie, when they came to see the movie, they're like, "Hey, I came to see Barbara Stanwyck, one of the most gorgeous women." in the world at this moment, whatever. And he's like, instead you give me a blonde George Washington. What is this nonsense? I have the exact same quote. <laughs> and then even to the point, like people, the only, the only thing people dislike about the movie is her wig. And it's just a not, it's really not, it's not as distracting as you think it might be, but it is. Yeah, I, I actually didn't even think nothing about it until you told me, told, told me about this. I mean, it podcast. looked weird, but I was like, oh, it's just the 30s. It was just the 40s. Yeah, I, I didn't think nothing of it. I was wrapped, wrapped up in the characters. But I found out later, uh, people complain about the wig. They say it's the bad part. The the creator, the that creator, the director, the the Billy Wilder, he didn't mention it when they asked him about it then in the, in the 40s. He's like, oh, you know, it's a wig, blah, 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 whatever. He picked the wig out with, he picked the wig out with Barbara. But years after the fact at other interviews, people were like, well, what's something that you wish you could go back and, and fix in, in one of your movies? This is years later. He's like, in all honesty, Barbara Stanwyck's wig and double indemnity. 
And they're like, why, why couldn't you change it? He was like, well, I uh, didn't realize it was a bad idea until about two weeks into shooting. And I didn't have enough time to go back and reshoot all the scenes. So I just said, mm, we're going to go forward. <laughs> but during that same little interview, he's like, it's kind of maybe I meant to do it. Because when I think back on it, the wig, this whole character has a sense of phony a sense of fake of sense yeah. of just not being real there's no way i don't think he did that yeah, yeah. and he was then, like he's like maybe i did it on purpose he's like maybe i'm smarter than i think i am but the wig does give her a sense of phony and fake and he's like and he he never actually admits it that's what he was thinking but he's like maybe i did and it's like i just yeah. didn't realize it till 20 years later everything i read pointed in that direction that and just from what you know about wilder that I could see him saying, you know, it all makes it look like he tried to say he intentionally did it. And but with he his never ego actually, and everything. Yeah. I think that's kind of the, the story he tried to stick with. I intentionally, I, I did it on purpose, but yeah, but yeah, that's, that was a great little piece of trivia that, that damn wig. But yeah, to us, it doesn't, it probably didn't look weird because it's the forties and we, you know, we didn't really know how they wore their hair and stuff, but people watching the movie back then were probably like, what the hell is she doing with that hair? Oh yeah, I guess. Even rewatching it, I was like, I mean, it's weird, but it's not like. Yeah, I guess that was more of a, more of something to talk about. That yeah, was, that would be a final thought. <laughs> I, yeah, but that, that's the last things I have to talk about the movie, and uh, we we both talked about it. He'd been striking the matches. Did you count the match strikes? I didn't. No, I got. Uh, hopefully, I didn't miss any, but I counted eleven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ten That's of them. A I wouldn't think that. I knew there were a lot, but I wouldn't have thought there were that many. I think that I'm, I'm hoping I didn't miss any. There may have been one or two early on that I may have not heard. That's why I turned the volume up in my headset. But there were there's eleven in the entire movie, <laughs> ten of which are Walter, and the very last eleventh one is Keys lighting it for Walter. For Walter. So, my review of the movie we've we've been going back and forth, and I. The acting is great. Uh, the music, it's it's there. It's, it never really blew my mind. There wasn't anything like I don't I don't remember any bit of music in the entire. That's typical for you though, but I guess Steve didn't mention any music. Yeah, you time. didn't mention the music either, but we'll get to that. I talked about my favorite scene, the zoom in on her face, which was a you know creative block. It was it was a great scene. The banter is wonderful. The dialogue is great. It's just all around a genuinely good movie. And so I'm going to give this movie four thumbstruck matches out <laughs> of five. Nice. Because I, I genuinely enjoyed the movie. I thought it was fantastic. Acting was amazing. It was what, all. Uh, yeah. What qualifies a five for you? I don't know, frankly, what's going to qualify as a five for me. So, what was the. I think whenever we initially talked about these, we said five is like no flaws. What were the flaws in this that kind of drops it down to a four? There might not be any. Uh, honestly, yeah, there, like Drew said, I, there might not be any, but it doesn't, for me, it's not a five. Like, I, I, it's like you won't watch it every, I don't know. Like, I would watch it again gladly. Like, but I wouldn't, it's not one of the, like, if I, you know, I, I, I own the movie, I bought the movie, it's going to stay on my shelf. 
And I may whip it out again. I may not. If I ever, you know, whenever my girlfriend's over and she's like, oh, let's watch a movie. I'd be like, hey, have you ever seen this? And she's like, I don't do old movies. And I'm like, I don't do you. We're done. <laughs> you know, because I mean, but uh, I, I, I loved it. Everything was great. I, I just I don't want to give something a five. I, I think for I, I honestly I'm not sure if I'll give anything a five. <laughs> To be frank, is like there's wow, can't say I can't. That. I don't Just know in the podcast. No, I mean I'll, I'll give something a five eventually, but I, I don't know what it'll be. Yeah, but this movie's great, and I I, I don't know. I I don't know about my it, it's a I, I see it as it's, it's definitely more than a one, two, or three. I'm not sure if it's quite. If I honestly, I think I'll take into consideration. Uh, that this was the first of its type, mm-hmm. but I had I have seen stories like this time and time again. So I saw everything coming. There wasn't anything that was surprising except for, to except me. For him shooting her, yeah, that is, I I didn't I didn't expect that. But as far as like oh murder seductor, she's going to try to double murder you with somebody else. Like these back and forth plot. Like, I think that's my thing. Well, that's not the movie. That's not the movie's fault. It's not the movie's fault by any means, but I wasn't surprised by anything. So I was like, oh, it, it, that. That's just because Keys was guiding you through the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Keys <laughs> held my hand. It was like, I got you, big boy. Anyway, yeah. I uh, four thumbstruck matches out of five. I'm glad that you finally got gave a four, man. Or you so, gave a four already, didn't you? Is this boy? No, no. Uh, you, I think you gave. Oh, I have the ratings here. Did you give Video Drum a four? No, I think Video Drum was a three. You gave it because so he gave Blake actually gave, ironically, he gave um Easy A a four, which I don't think I think that this I might be better. Give a four. Yeah. I think that I think Double Indemnity is a better. Double Indemnity is better than Easy A without a shadow of a yeah. doubt. So the only other four we have is uh, Steve on Video Drum. I think I don't have Episode One on here for some reason. But anyway, Episode One was both threes. Oh, three, yeah, yeah, I think I, so. I don't, I don't have. It's like three bullets to the head versus three. That was coyotes. Coyotes, coyotes. Coyote. yeah. yeah. Anyway, anyway. Uh, I'll let you give your final thoughts and review. All right, I'll I'll touch on the music real fast, just because we didn't go over it. But I, I wasn't crazy about the score. I mean, again, just the kind of music back then. It's it is what it is. It's not my cup of tea, but it did its job in the movie. But it was nominated for an Oscar. Um, and it was by a guy named, uh, it's a Spanish name. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I think it's Spanish, I guess, but Mikos Rosa, maybe is how you pronounce it. But he actually was the composer for, uh, the previous film that Wilder did called Five Graves to Cairo. And, um, that movie was his first real movie, um, that he, like Hollywood Endeavor. So, um, this Double Indemnity basically being his second and he got an Oscar nomination for it. Didn't win, but he got nominated. Um, and then he was deal. real. Go ahead, Drew. It's, a, it's still a big, a huge deal. Well, oh, heck um, yeah. I was yeah. talking about Oscar nominations. This movie, they were expecting it to clean up, but it, it didn't. It, 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 it got nominated for a lot of stuff. But I don't think it won any of these categories. It I didn't. Think. It didn't win any, but it's lived in infamy you know and not in infamy one of those things the 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 thing that won that year what was it called uh a little uh, it was like a uh, i know i'm sorry but like he 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 said it and it sparked a memory from the interview 
or from the, the behind the scenes is the some of the critics were talking about oh yeah the movie that won that year was like some family comedy like a visit to the north or something like that. it was some cheesy thing and everyone's like yeah nobody remembers that movie everybody who knows anything about film noir knows this movie and this movie still stands the test of time and no one remembers that movie other than in situations like this when like yeah it won that year it shouldn't have because uh this movie also was the third time that barbara stanwick in a row was nominated for best actress in an oscar this was her third time in a row but i I, again she did i don't think she won either the other times either but anyway sorry steve i didn't mean to just no i was trying to i'm trying to look them up because it's bothering me now because they said the name in that in that little commentary on my blu-ray i just can't remember of it just like best picture 1944 oscars shouldn't be that difficult i did but it didn't oh god it's not it's not um it's 45 oscars it's 45 uh, 1945 oscars not not 1944 but going my way Going my way, yeah, it's a little family comedy or something like that. Yeah, and best actress was In- Ingrid Bergman over <sighs> Sam Wick. Yeah, so this the movie was in forty four, but the Oscars for that that year was forty five. Uh, forty four was actually Casablanca. So, <laughs> yes, that's a good movie. It's only stood the test of time a little bit. Okay, so sorry. <laughs> talked about talked about the score. Uh, just kind of mentioned that, but again. I do usually talk about the music, but again, that this type of music isn't, isn't really my cup of tea. But it, again, it was extremely effective for what it was in the movie. They did a great job. I mean, I'm just going to straight up say this movie was, in my opinion, flawless. I mean, we we said, and that's in my my grading criteria, just from what we said in the first episode or episode zero, I guess, is if I can't find any flaws in the movie, then uh, it's it's got to be five. But that we kind of mentioned the the only couple flaws that that I saw in it were just the the whole you know whenever he did murder him, uh, or maybe I didn't really go into this that much. But whenever he's hiding out in that back seat, I just thought that was kind of weird that Mister Dietrichson didn't see him at all. Yeah, you know, didn't kind of- see. He's like and didn't because he was up against. He's like. You're not rocking back and forth in that chair a little bit and feeling there's uh-huh. a hard spot in the dead center of your spine on the passenger side. Yeah. Yeah. That, suspension. I mean, there's disbelief, there's a little though. suspension display and the stuff Drew was talking about earlier with the, with this in the kind of the same, the same scene, but um, you know, there, there's some little things here and there, but again, those are extremely forgivable. Uh, is I just you know it's just the way that the movies were back then, and there's just so much suspension of disbelief just because of what they were and were not allowed to show, you know. So, um, but the creativity they made up on other parts more than made you know that they did on the other parts more than made up for for those tiny little things. Uh, again, di- <laughs> dialogue, screenwriting, screenplay. This should be you know if it's not already, I'm, and I'm sure it is, but just a template for how to, how to, you know, <laughs> write a, a movie and make it effective. And I, I want to see more movies like this. I, I, I hate that nowadays we have movies where you got to show everything. And uh, you know, this movie's a, a sample of Pulp Fiction and then the movie Pulp Fiction with Quentin Tarantino. The best thing about that movie is they don't show us in that briefcase. And to this day, everybody wonders, you know, what it is. Is it Marcellus Wallace's soul or, um, but just that that 
leaving something to the imagination, you know, and um, I love that. Jeff and I were just talking the other day about there's a movie called The Innkeepers. Have you guys ever heard of that? Oh, yeah, with Pat Keeley and Sarah West. Is that a Ty West movie? I think it's Ty West, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, there's a scene in that where this girl sees the ghost and they don't show what they she sees they just show her reaction and hurry yeah and again the actor has to do a great job to sell this and she does but just the expression on her face and the total fear in her eyes of what she sees and it's over this guy she's looking at the she's looking at pat healy or whatever and it's behind him over his shoulder and you just see her reaction to what she sees and that is ten thousand times more scary than showing the same this jump scare you know of some weird crazy ghost looking thing and uh, it's just this movie just the way that they did it i I just i want to see more stuff done like this it's it's just like reading a book you know it's just like so much leaving so much stuff to your imagination and you filling in the blanks and um like stephen king says you know and whenever you're describing a, a cage you know you you don't say the cage in detail you just say that the rabbit's in a cage you know what i'm saying um the cage could be metal it could be mesh it could be glass you know you don't know but you kind of fill that in your own mind and that stuff is just fun and uh, this is go ahead when people over describe scenes it can get very boring while you're reading you're just like i get it yeah i don't need to know Stephen King says you're not writing an instruction manual. <laughs> I don't need to know that the walls were teal blue and there was a, some dust motes in the air. And it exactly, just, it, it, it was an old room and there was dust everywhere. Let's go. Exactly. Yep. And that's what Double Indemnity does. And I'm sure a lot. And I'm going to try to you know kind of knock off some other of these other older movies that I haven't seen. But um, it's just we really need to start doing things the way they used to. It's there's just too much out there now where we show everything and it's just, it's ruining it, ruining it for me. Um, but anyway, I'm not going to preach, uh, five dictaphones out of five for this one. How do you spell that? (laughs) Can you spell dictaphone for me? You want me to spell dictaphone for you? (laughs) Yeah. Drew needs it for purposes. Dicta phone, D I C T A phone. Okay. Is that is that cool? Does that got it? Does that give yeah. it to you? Perfect. Got it. Thanks. <laughs> all right. So and it's all wrapped up for that. Y'all gonna uh I guess it's now time for its recommendation first, then me, and then we're done. So we're not the next next movie. Yeah. My next movie for you, Steve. I th- Maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't, but I know you're a fan of the man who wrote it based off of previous conversations we've had and stuff. But it came out, it's a horror comedy. It came out in the year 2000 and it's called Psycho Beach Party. You ever heard of it? I have heard of it. I haven't seen it. You've never, oh, you haven't seen it? This would be, okay, cool. I think, I think you'll like it. It stars, um, a few people. Uh, I own it. Yeah, I've seen it at least once or twice. But it stars uh, Nicholas Brendan from Buffy the Vampire Slayer fame. Uh, one of the other characters, uh, her name is Laura something, but she was the, the daughter in Six Feet Under. Oh, Lauren Ambrose. Yeah, Lauren Ambrose. And uh, one of the other 
this was a slightly bigger role for her before she got on to big thing, bigger Amy things. Amy Adams? Yes, Amy Adams. I knew, I knew she was in this. Does she have a big role in it? Uh, she plays Nicholas Brendan's girlfriend, but it's, it's a pretty prominent role. She, she's in there enough because she's like, oh, I don't like this main character because she's a weird girl. And then like the weird girl and the hot guy become friends. And she's like, I don't, I don't like you hanging out with that weird girl. So she's in there enough, but she's more antagonistic. Gotcha. Man, but, we can't uh, talk about it too much. No. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm looking right now. It says that uh, if you can watch it right now on Prime Video. Is that on the Just Watch app? Because well, no, it says uh, right there. It literally says subscription Amazon Prime. Oh, I, cool. yeah, I was have, trying to figure out what year it came out. I couldn't remember. We have a DVD, but well, what's the Watch app? That's fine. That's okay. Don't worry about it. I have Prime up right now. Actually, let's see. Okay. While you're doing that, I'm gonna go ahead and do the little. Uh, internet wrap up right here and then you guys can in this bad boy uh as always we want to thank greg bennett for the awesome intro music he made for us can't beat it got a compliment on it on reddit i forgot to tell you guys we got a compliment on greg's intro oh. on the, the same reddit post I, I talked to you guys about that same guy complimented greg's uh intro song that's awesome sauce nice. yeah uh well deserved thank- yeah, I also want to thank Devious Pixel for the uh, title art he did for us. Me and Blake use uh, have been using Devious Pixel for a few years now uh, on our other podcast. He does great stuff too. If you want to keep track of uh, what we're doing with the podcast, I uh, I run the Facebook and the Twitter pages for this. Uh, Blake and Steve are just too lazy; they don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, on but those I'll post. I usually post. Sometimes I'll post. Um, the day before we record uh, if anybody has any thoughts or questions about that the current movie or any previous movie i will have uh, a post about that if anybody wants to write in for something like that uh, i make those posts and if i had anything to anything to read right now it would be at this point i would probably be reading it but we'll somebody somebody will write in eventually and then i'll post again when uh probably when i'm done editing and then for the when the episode comes out it's just keep just keep track of the podcast is all it is and we have a the email address of course uh which is great another place to write in and like you can write in there like anyway facebook twitter or email or all uh, places you can write in to um we have been collecting a couple of listener requests for movies and we actually have a couple saved up so we're actually people have people have actually wrote into request movies we're pretty excited about that and the plan right now for listener requests would be to do one every 10th episode that's the current uh plan right now but things can change who knows so uh we are reading those reading the messages and stuff like that communicate with people about we have one request on from a guy on facebook and one request uh, on a reddit uh, thread so we, we have people listening to the podcast and requesting movies that's pretty exciting it's very exciting yeah mm-hmm. uh and the last thing of course is shameless self-promotion uh, me and blake do run another podcast uh mostly focused on video games uh i do recommend bands on there sometimes and blake does do uh he, he still does movies and tv shows on that one but that that podcast he tries to be as spoiler free as possible and that actually that is what spawned uh action is let it, letting him talk free form about a movie and not have to worry about spoiling it 
So that's pretty cool. And the last thing, of course, we're always promoting Blake's writing to motivate him to write more. He has a story published on amazon.com. You can find it there. They come this night. You search that he'll pop up right away. And uh, I, I forgot to mention before on an episode, but I do like if you happen to buy it and read it, uh, reviews always help on Amazon. Uh, so please do that. But don't, I don't want anybody writing in a review to that just because you like Blake on either one of the podcasts. I mean, don't write, don't, you know, don't write a review. Just, I like Blake. That's kind of boring. So if you, he'd actually like thoughts and criticism on the story, if it's, if at all possible. Mm-hmm. And that's all I got. Uh, ready for you guys to say your little words of wisdom or whatever you want to call it. All right, everybody. Thanks again for listening and uh, make sure you see enough movies because all of life's riddles are answered in the movies. And I want to wish everybody a good evening and good night. You may remember that date, Keys. You came into my office around three in the afternoon. Hello, Keys. Just came from Norton's office. Semi-annual sales records are out. You're a high man, Walter. That's twice in a row. Congratulations. Thanks. How would you like a cheap drink? How would you like a $50 cut in salary? Do I laugh now or wait it gets funny? Oh, I'm serious. I've just been talking to Norton. Too much stuff piling up on my desk. Too much pressure on my nerves. I spent half the night walking up and down in my bed. I've got to have an assistant, and I thought of you. Me? Why pick on me? Well, because I've got a crazy idea. It might be good at the job. That's crazy, all right. I'm a salesman. Yeah. Peddler. Flat hander. Backslapper. You're too good to be a salesman. Nobody's too good to be a salesman. Oh, fooey. All you guys do is just ring doorbells and dish out a smooth line of monkey talk. What's troubling you is that 50 buck cut, isn't it? Well, that'll trouble anybody. Now, look, Walter, the job I'm talking about takes brains and integrity. It takes more guts than there is in 50 salesmen. It's the hardest job in the business. Yeah, but it's still a desk job. I don't want to be nailed to a desk. Desk job? Is that all you can see in it? Just a hard chair to park your pants on from 9 to 5, huh? Just a pile of papers to shuffle around and five sharp pencils and a scratch pad to make figures on. Maybe a little doodling on the side. Well, that's not the way I look at it, Walter. To me, a claims man is a surgeon. That desk is an operating table. And those pencils are scalpels and bone chisels. And those papers are not just forms and statistics and claims for compensation. They're alive. They're packed with drama, with twisted hopes and crooked dreams. A claims man, Walter, is a, is a, is a doctor and a bloodhound and a... Who? Okay, hold on a minute. A claims man is a doctor and a bloodhound and a cop and a judge and a jury and a father confessor all in one. <laughs>